You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Would you like to confess, Dr. Linden? To what? I want can't to remember the time with any precision. But I'm not asking you for the precise time. So could it have been half past 12, perhaps? 10, 11, midnight? No. It's just that I can't stand to think of you with anyone else. Tell me! We're alone here, no witnesses. When I'm with you, I'm with you. I love being with you. Well, what does that mean, with me, not with me? Confess between us. Tell me what you dare not don't ever use that word love again, and I promise I won't. Bad timing. A terrifying love story. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Adam Long. Hello, hello. Also with us this week is one of the hosts of the Killer POV podcast, Mr. Elric Kane. Hey, thanks for having me. Been a big fan ever since you did the Possession episode. This week we are looking at the 1980 film from director Nicholas Rogue, Bad Timing. The film tells a tale as old as humanity itself. It's the story of two people, Alex Linden, played by Art Garfunkel, and Melena Flaherty, played by Teresa Russell, who got together maybe when they shouldn't have. Melena is a free spirit, while Alex is anything but. The movie bounces back and forth in time while we witness an investigation of Alex's actions the night Melena committed suicide. How do you solve a problem like Melena? I don't really know if there are spoilers to be had uh, with this film because it's uh, going back and forth in time, and really there's uh, you know, there's just a whole lot of stuff happening here. But if you haven't seen Bad Timing, uh, I would definitely recommend you turn off the podcast, go watch the movie, fairly readily available. It's on the Criterion Collection. Check it out. Read every volume of Freud first, then come back to the podcast. You might want to uh, take the Lucher color test, too, while you're at <laughs> yeah, it. right. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, I, I took it earlier this evening, and the results were very interesting. So if you're still with us, I will ask you, Adam, when was the first time you saw Bad Timing, and what did you think? You know, this goes back to about 1985, and it was in the days before uh, I had a VCR. And so um, the only way to watch movies at that point, if it was something that was in the middle of the night that HBO didn't see fit to show in the uh, the earlier hours, you had to set your alarm clock to get up and actually physically watch the movie. So I, I had always wanted to see Don't Look Now, and I got up uh, one morning at about 3.45 in the morning to, uh, to see Don't Look Now, and uh, – it was just absolutely uh, like nothing I'd ever experienced. And I knew at that point I had to seek out all of the, uh, the Nick rogue films that I could find. And uh, it took me probably about another 15 years before I finally got, uh, came into contact with a copy of bad timing. I was again, bowled over when I saw it the first time. I think that it's the kind of film that, has improved as I've gotten older because there's a lot of things that I've lived through, uh, as we all do, I guess. And uh, you, you appreciate it more as you do get older. I was a 
in my late 20s, early 30s, first time I saw it. And so there's a lot of things that I noticed on this viewing that uh, really hit me a lot harder than they did uh, back then. But uh, that was uh, my initial impression was good. Uh, this time, my impression was even better. So how about you, Elric? I started on VHS uh, probably when I was you know, maybe 15 years ago. Very young. I was actually ending just after a relationship had ended where there was kind of an infidelity even though it was kind of over anyway and i remember you know not a serious marriage or anything but i remember watching the film as a big rogue fan I, I grew up in new zealand so because of walkabout you know he that film was a household film everyone had seen in that part of the world so i slowly got into his other films and he quickly became one of my favorite directors when i came to bad timing I don't think I was prepared. The style wasn't shocking at all once you're, you know, once you're in Rogue's world, the way he uh, constructs narrative. But the content really was, and it really kind of hollowed me out. I think I recognized a great deal in both characters and their relationship. And like a very, a very similar situation to how I took in possession, I was scared to rewatch the film till recently, both films, uh, again, because they made such an impression on me. Thought about them almost, you know, every day since became two of my favorite films that I'd only seen once, both of them, you know, and, and then just in the last couple of years, I've revisited both of them because of the kind of, um, you know, the resurgence for both of them, in a sense, left a really big impression, actually, but I hadn't gone as deep as we have the last few days in researching it. So now it's, it's got all sorts of other um, layers to it. Yeah, this one was very tough to find uh, for a long time. I remember it was uh, kind of available through the gray market, like through Video Search of Miami, but it wasn't go on down to the video store and you're able to buy a copy of or find a copy of Bad Timing. Uh, a friend of mine recommended this to me years and years ago. And so it was one of those movies that I just always kind of kept my eye out for and eventually found a copy, watched it a long time ago. And I was like, yeah, okay, this this is good. But it, the editing style for me, I wasn't that familiar with Rogue's work. And this might have been one of the first things that I saw of his. I think actually I saw Walkabout first and then had a really late drunken night watching performance, which probably is not the best way to see performance. And then saw this somewhere maybe in the middle. And so the editing style really kind of took me off guard and now i have to say after watching it i don't know four or five times now especially a few times over the last few weeks it feels so natural to me even the last time that i watched it it just feels like this is the way that the story should unfold yeah you know what that was something in every note every review about his movies that really interests me everyone uses the word fragmented and they're right but they mean it in a way that's rough and almost like it's difficult or confusing and the one thing i thought about watching it again is how incredibly exactly what you're saying how incredibly fluid it feels not frag. It's fragmented, but it's all. It feels like you're. It really experiencing time. How somebody might feel it, it both past, present, future. You know, at once. And so the word fluidity, which I've never read in a review about Nicholas Rogue, actually came <laughs> to mind this time. So, which was interesting. Well, it makes a lot of sense that there's this fragmentation because we are talking about memory through a lot of it. Because when we talk about this film, we have to think about who our narrators are. And the, the narrators are plural. And I don't mean literal narrators. We don't really get voiceover in this film, though we do get fragments of voices coming in at different times to kind of start off some of our ideas of these memories and things. But throughout the beginning of the film, we are really experiencing things through 
Alex's point of view, his memories of things, and really getting things through how he experienced them, what he's thinking about, and really kind of retracing his steps through this relationship through him. And then as the movie progresses, and we're introduced to this investigator character, this Natuso character who's played by Harvey Keitel, we're now experiencing things through his point of view and kind of recreating what he is experiencing or what he thinks might have happened. And at no time do we necessarily get the truth. You know, we get that whole idea of, you know, there's three versions of every story, one person's, another person's, and then what the real story is. And in this, we are just getting the two men kind of telling us or showing us what's going on with this. And we never get really Milena's point of view at all. So this whole thing is shaded. That really positions her as the object of the obsessions, you know, because we never get to feel what she perceives. She, though what's interesting about Russell's performance is that she everything's externalized, which is pretty rare with screen acting where, you know, it's always about the internal, watching internal movement. And this, everything is on the surface. So you almost don't need her perspective because she's giving you everything. She's saying, love me, love, you know, the whole way through. So it's it's very unusual performance. You guys were talking about the cutting of the film. I think that's uh, essential because of his choice to eliminate basically the middle part of this couple's relationship because uh, you we get to see the the early, you know, the where they're fawning over each other and just getting acclimated to each other, and then the uh, the explosive finale, if you will, of their relationship. So yeah. the uh, the the cutting back and forth, I think, is essential because if you were just uh, going with your traditional, um, we're used to seeing, then you would miss all of that. So I mean, that you would. So. That's really interesting. It's almost like um, that great Hitchcock quote about a uh, film is life with the dull bits cut out. This is a relationship with the dull bits cut out. Let's go, you know, bam into the intro and bam into the outro, you know. There's a lot of that. You know, you almost get the idea that maybe Nick Rogue does not have a, a, you know, a good feeling that relationships are built to last mm. because some of the things that uh, – that that come up during the course of the film, you know, there's the opening line where they first meet each other. And it's like, if we don't meet, there's this uh, possibility that it could have been perfect. And I thought that was a great line. They said the only perfect relationship is, uh, is one that, um, that uh, was unrequited. I think Woody Allen said that. So anyway, <laughs> Yeah, it's neat because we start off in a museum and we get all of these uh, Klimt paintings. Beautiful, the way that these things are. I can't say that I was very familiar with his art before I saw this film. And just to see the way that we have these, uh, there's a, a three main paintings that we focus on. And one of them is the kiss. And it's uh, this man kind of looming over this woman and kissing her. And then we have these two other paintings of the same woman, but kind of like seven or eight years apart and then this like mosaic pattern that's going and almost kind of trapping uh, her face and her body in this and I thought that was so appropriate because this mosaic to me all these little color bits really remind me of all of these little fragmented bits of the story that we're going to get and especially like some of those fragments uh, form a little chain around her neck and so much of this is kind of like trying to to tame this woman, to tame Melena, if she is the woman in the painting. And it's so much 
easier to have a woman in a painting and somebody that is an object that you can just have on the wall and never be threatened by. And that so seems like what Alex would prefer because he's just trying to tame this woman through so much of this film and she cannot be tamed. You know, she is associated with wild colors. She's associated with wild animals. You know, she's got like birds all, all the time on her pendants or birds on her, her, um, her, her outfits and everything. And he's, just trying to like if she was a butterfly he'd be there with a couple pins out just trying to get those wings to be clipped you know it's just he uh wants her to fit to his world view and it's totally the wrong way of going about this it's all about control he's basically like a character who's kind of incapable of loving because loving's letting go of certain things letting go of control but he can only love her and you know obviously we'll save it for as we go in the thing but the ultimate act that transpires later in the film uh, when he tries to literally control her unconsciously and you realize if and he can say i love you then but that's not love by then we realize this is his problem he can only he can only love something in a frame or as as he's a psychoanalyst something on the couch you know that he's in control and I think everything he's, – he has such a clinical way of looking at life. I think it's summed up in that note that he finds that she leaves him that says, I wish you would understand me less and love me more. And I think that sums up uh, a lot of his, his way – his take on their relationship, I think. Which he might never have seen, right? Because I think it's the detective who actually uh, – That's correct. Looks yes, it, it is. Which is pretty interesting. He never even gets that. And it's great that we cut from that museum – we have this like screaming that sounds to me like a, an air raid siren, but it's actually the sound of the ambulance because then we're going to go from this very nice scene of these two characters at this art museum. We've got this Tom Waits song playing. All of a sudden we're going into this ambulance and something has happened. And I love the way that this whole investigation of what has happened takes us through the rest of the story. And we keep cutting back to the hospital. We keep cutting back to Melina on the operating room table. And then we get the investigation by the police and all the time, you know, we're, we're, going back to this as our central thread. And so when we talk about how fragmented the film is, it's really not necessarily that fragmented because we get a very clear line of narrative running through this film and tying all of this stuff together. It's just that we are constantly bouncing back and forth as far as where things are in the relationship. But as we go through, there are very clear signposts as far as when are we looking at uh, Melina's uh, hairstyles, looking at her clothes, looking at these things, because Alex is very buttoned down and he looks so drab throughout so much of this film. But she, we can kind of tell where she's at with where her hairstyle is a lot of times. When she's wearing the hair to the side, it seems like she's the most free, and that's when we first meet her. And I love when we meet her at this party that you're talking about, and she's got that like crazy beaded top to it, which totally reminds me of those Klimt paintings. Yeah, it's 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 really rich, and it's so I, I love how aggressive she is with that first meeting. You you quoted uh, the other the second line of the movie, the the first line where she just kind of comes up to him and says, "Well, if we're going to meet, might as well be now." That I think it sums up her as much as his response does. Uh, she is, like you said, she's like a free bird. The way she dresses is everything's kind of disruptive to what he would want in his kind of ordered universe. So it's, you know, I think it's interesting. Also, I had one question. Do you, did they show the Egon Shield painting in the first part with Klimt, or do they show it only later 
the first time you're at the gallery? They actually dissolve from the kiss into Death and the Maiden, okay. which I found to be very telling. Yeah, I just I just think it's interesting because you've got these two, you know, famous Viennese uh, painters, and one of them is really it feels like it's it follows a trajectory of a relationship, you know, the veneer of beauty and you know passion, and then the other one, Egon Schiele, who who I was actually really I was less familiar with Klimt, but Schiele I loved, you know, in my twenties because there was so much angst in those paintings, you know, it just almost as much as uh, Edvard Munch or something. And, you know, we haven't really discussed as far as, like, both of these guys were Viennese artists and the whole film taking place in Vienna, which almost becomes another character unto itself. And then I was reminded of you, Elric, actually, while I was watching this because of this whole idea of Austria having all the borders and there just being this whole thing to the border where we have Melina and her I guess he's her husband, maybe soon-to-be ex-husband, Stefan, played by Denim Elliott. And that reminds me, whenever I see a border now, I'm always thinking of the wall in Berlin. And so I immediately start thinking of possession as far as the divisions between men and women, between the freedom and the non-freedom, and just this whole idea of us passing back and forth between Czechoslovakia and Austria in this. I was just like, oh, okay. So I don't know if you were thinking of the same thing while you were watching this. Yeah, I did. Well, and I think the big thing is that um, a lot of directors, you know, especially obviously Hollywood, uh, use uh, foreign locations just as, you know, titillating plate. Like if you watched uh, Taken 2, which was one of the most insulting I've ever seen, where, you know, it just cuts <laughs> them and everything is chanting and uh, prayer and, you know, shots of Turkish uh, mosques. And it's just, you know, the whole way through because they don't know, it doesn't delve any deeper. But both of those directors, both Zulowski and uh, uh, Roger, you can tell how important uh, it is as a character or as a lifeblood of the world of the characters. And I, I think they both uh, are utilizing it, you know, symbolically. I, and this one, I, the things I started thinking about, well, there's that one great line where Alex is in uh, bed with her talking about her marriage. And he says, to be in between is to be no place at all. So they're literally using the, you know, the borders uh, where they keep meeting as no place at all. But I also, I agree. I think it's, I think what I, for what I kept taking away is the borders are really referring like what you need to cross in yourself to actually find love with somebody else. Uh, you have to be willing to cross those, those boundaries and those borders. And if you're not willing to, which I don't think he's ultimately willing to go into, her, you know, all the way into her chaos, you, you can't, you'll be stuck in your country, as it were, you know, whereas Morocco becomes this very different place for them, you know, from then the borders. There's a great line, too, when she's finally coming out of Czechoslovakia. She's ready to kind of give herself over to Alex. She's ready to move in with him. You know, she's going to tidy up the place, I imagine, these kind of things. And he just lays into her. And after a while, she finally breaks down and walks away. And he's like, where are you going? She's like, nowhere. And I was like, okay, yeah, she literally is going to be nowhere because she's going to be in that no man's land between the two countries. And I was like, oh, that's a really nice statement there. And that moment, like uh, the, I was making notes, I didn't write a lot about the style, you know, because it's just so pervasive. But that moment you're talking about where she's saying goodbye to the Stefan and she's like leaves them. They, they sleep together one last time. He's in bed. She walks right towards camera, looks right at camera, smiles, this big smile. And you're like, oh, my God, breaking the fourth wall. And then it just perfect match cut to him waiting at the border and links these two spaces just and that's what i mean by fluidity it's almost you know it almost assaults you but then it it, it, that straightens itself afterwards yeah i'm glad that you picked up on that because i was i was noted that and then also her look when uh she and stefan are having their final uh get together and she's just staring off at the ceiling like no feeling for this man anymore at all and what he's doing to her she just 
could care less or could not care less. And then to have Alex just jump all over her when she finally gets to the border and just about how selfish she is and all this kind of stuff. She really wanted to make this change. And then he misinterprets everything. And he is great at misinterpreting things for someone who is supposed to be so canny about figuring things out. He's like always talking about, you know, being a spy and, and he is a literal spy and just really trying to you know pinpoint things. You know, what was his line about the, the gratification through knowledge and everything through gratification of curiosity, one acquires knowledge He's terrible at it. He's always misinterpreting everything. You know, he, he sees these pictures of Melina and another man, and he's convinced that he's this, her lover, only to find out later on that these are pictures of her and her dead brother. <laughs> and it's like, you are an idiot. <laughs> when the, but that's what obsession does, right? Like the the idea of being blinded to anything else. And it, But I, I think where we're at the border, where you're, that moment you're talking about is – uh, it's also interesting because it also is where we talk about this, the title. It's another allusion to bad timing. Like he, he says, I've waited a whole day. You're a day late. And everything is about – I mean it's, there's like 10 times, right, or or so in the film where something has happened because of the, the literal bad timing between characters. Uh, they're out of sync, you know, which is – which I really like. I'm glad the title was changed from – what was it? Illusions? I don't know what that would have really – how that could have worked. How you doing? What happened? You don't like it, do you? Don't like what? My outfit, the way I look. You look fine. Oh, come on, I look better than that, don't I? Right, you look real fine. Bought it for you. Aren't you happy? Couldn't be happier. You're a day late. Yeah, I wired you, didn't I? Yeah, it was waiting for me when I got back. Alex, I'm moving in with you. Can't we just... Just do one thing for me, Milena. Never force yourself to be different from who you are. Well, how am I then, huh? You tell me, how am I? You're just fine if you forget someone was waiting. Look, can we just forget all that? What, forget that because you got on something pretty, it changes who you are? I was going to tell you something. I'm sorry. Elaine, I'm sorry. Where are you going? Nowhere! You know, I, I think it's interesting how the majority of the film, it feels to me like they are like uh, Alex is spending so much time trying to get it back to the way it was in the beginning. He's not appreciating what they have in the now. Uh, there's that one line in there where he says, uh, why can't we get it back to how it was in the beginning? I mean, he just comes right out and says it. And that, uh, you know, I think that kind of sums it up. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of that um, conundrum where you, you can't enjoy what you're having now. You're reaching for something that's in the past, you know, and I think that's uh, there's there's a little bit of that going on. Maybe I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Something I picked up on too. Well, and again, it's a more sign that he's bad at relationships. <laughs> or what? It's true. Yeah, there's that line too. I like the line where he says, uh, "They're they're happy." That's because they don't know each other well enough. So that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another. So, so many great lines in this movie, really. When you're talking about timing and, I mean, so much of this movie hinges, I mean, one of the mysteries of the film is this time of 
what, three hours as far as between when Alex receives a phone call that we hear at the beginning of the film and when he actually calls an ambulance to have her taken to the hospital. There's these three hours, and that's what the investigator is really trying to fill. And I love that when we're cutting back and forth between her and her apartment making this phone call and back to Alex, that you hear the ticking of a clock really, really loud on the soundtrack. You said it exceptionally well the other night. That's right. Pissed. Elena, what are you... How else can I get myself ready? I can't get by you. Max, please don't go. Let's have a real goodbye. One moment where he holds up his hand and he's holding onto this doorway on his way out as the inspector is like, you know, oh, where are you going to be? All this kind of stuff. He's like, oh, I thought you said I was free to go. And he's got his hand up here and his watch is just just focused in on so, you know, it, it's there in the frame and it is so noticeable, even though it's just kind of a natural gesture that he's doing. It's just like, wow, I, I'm really paying attention to that watch right now. Yeah, again, all these fragments matter. It's like the ultimate Kuleshov filmmaking technique, you know? It just but he has so many. You you need you need like ten edits before the meaning is established, you know, because it's yeah, it's it's really interesting how he draws you into certain details. And 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 this is definitely one of those films that gets richer each viewing because on first viewing I think it's just the emotion of the piece that washes over you and you miss a lot of the connections. Um and, and just like the opening of Don't Look Now, he's so good um at layering these visual connections through mat- graphic matches for the most part, you know, especially in that opening. Well I'll tell you one thing I didn't notice until probably the second to last time that I watched this is when they get back together at one point, because so much of this movie is them breaking apart, coming back together, breaking apart, coming back together, whether it's literal divides in space, like her crossing the border and then coming back to him, or when they actually break up when she finds a a file that he's been keeping on her husband and uh, subsequently on her. And there's a moment when they are talking and kind of getting back together maybe not really just kind of catching up and she speaks at one point but her mouth doesn't move they just take a little bit of audio and lay it over her so it's almost like her internal dialogue but it's just this great thing that i never noticed and i'm just like oh Wow, her, her her lips aren't moving. That's crazy, but it just it works so well because of the the way that the story is is being told. Because there are times where, like, even when she's in the ambulance at the very beginning, it's her voice that really kind of starts us off, and it's her apologizing to her husband to Stefan. And again, her lips aren't moving, and it's like, well, I'm not exactly sure when this audio is coming from, but eventually the story will kind of catch up with it. I noticed that with uh, the Art Garfunkel character, Alex. I noticed he does that on – there's several instances where you hear his voice, but his lips aren't moving also. So uh, that there's at least one or two instances I picked up on there of that. I loved it when with in Garfunkel's case. I don't think I actually noticed the uh, Teresa Russell, uh, Melena's uh, moment of that this time. So I'm going to have to watch it again because of you. But uh, in Garfunkel's case, my favorite is the first time when they they kind of reunite uh, towards the end of the film at the university, and you know they, it's a beautiful scene. The closer they physically get to each other, the more blurred and distorted all the backgrounds are, kind of locking them together. And uh, the first time he has a thought in his mind, I can't remember exactly. Oh, you lost your tan. 
he then says exactly that. And so it was really nice. Rather than giving you information, additional information, psychological information, what he could be thinking, they just give you exactly what he then goes and says. And I think that was a really nice touch to show that sometimes we're not as complicated <laughs> as it's headed. It's almost like those whisper thoughts from Dune or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I talked a little bit about uh, Vienna and of course, you know, Alex being a psychologist, Vienna, the home of psychology, all of that really makes sense. You know, and we actually have them having sex on Freud's couch at one point. So it's like, okay, I get that. But then i love the other thing is that there are callbacks to the third man in here. Like, especially when Alex first starts his investigation of Stefan and subsequently Melina, and he's in this little cafe and talking to one of his contacts and he's doing this nervous habit that I love where he's curling that curly hair, just like keeps messing with his hair. And we see that a few more times going on uh, in the film but there's this zither music that's playing and i'm like i know for sure that this is a callback to the third man because of that zither soundtrack and everything and it was just such a nice little touch why would she marry him listen i've had men in my life and only one would i have liked to marry but there are problems you know but marry him? Sure. Why not? Did he want to marry her? Why not? As for him and intelligence work, it's ridiculous. I think he would be flattered someone he didn't know was analyzing him. Though I'm sure he'd be as amazed as he would amused. You know, obviously we don't have them running through the sewers or anything like like Harry Lime, but this whole idea of these two people who aren't from Vienna being in Vienna and using the city as this backdrop and almost as a character to it, I found that to be very interesting. And I also found it interesting that Art Garfunkel's character, Alex, he never speaks German and he doesn't seem to ever want to engage with people in German. He will always ask questions in English or people will address him in German and he'll respond in English. And it's only when he goes to Morocco that he tries to fit in a little bit more and his French is terrible, but he does try to speak it to the natives there. And Melina speaks better French, I would say, than he does. Uh, but then also she gets by with the past because of her low-cut uh, top as well. So she's definitely uh, speaking the right language to some of the natives down there. Well, the Moroccan, I mean, to, to part the Moroccan one, just because you mentioned that, I thought was interesting because like any couple, when they go away on holiday, no matter what problems they have, often you're able to shed them for a while. When for him, specifically, when he's away from his real life, it's like he's free to be maybe who he wants to be, but she's unchanged. She's exactly the same person in both situations because she really is who she is. And then he tries to, you know, kind of seize the moment and, you know, get engaged or something and, and kind of, you know, live freely and it, it fails, you know, because it kind of, um, it's his, it's really just a disguised attempt to control her further. But uh, I just thought that was interesting that Morocco kind of represented that. But I did want to say one thing uh, on Vienna, and this is my only crazy note, and you can laugh at me if you think I'm wrong, but I wrote this down. I said, Stefan, is Harry Lyme. Look at the way he's dressed, his hairstyle, everything about him, and he's like a spy, you know, spy character. I'm like, I get the feeling to me this is like the growing, like if Harry Lyme had survived and grown up, 
he becomes Stefan. He's not American, obviously, but and I it felt like it was done on purpose. The style, the stylization of how Denim looks in it. So I don't know if it's just me. You were talking about earlier uh, how they when they make love on the couch. I, 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 it's a small touch, but I really appreciated it when he. Uh, when when he uh, does these quick cuts to the uh, to Freud's uh, picture on the wall and and I just uh, I thought that was really uh, kind of interesting uh, I, I like that touch. Well, I like that we get a couple of these shots of Freud because we get one, of course, in his office in Freud's office, and then we also get another one during Alex's lecture, where it's just this kind of weird lecture that he's giving, uh, especially because he's got like three slide projectors set up, and he's got two pointed at the back of the room and one at the front of the room, and to me, it's really kind of it's very. Uh, passive aggressive almost as far as like hey you guys i'm going to show you the slideshow but you're going to have to keep turning in your chair <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> i don't know it just felt really kind of rude to me i mean it was interesting at some point like he's showing pictures of a child in the front and then he's showing pictures of kind of the primal scene in the back so it's kind of the child looking from the front of the classroom to the back of the classroom and seeing his parents having sex but then the rest of it just seems like he's kind of going back and forth and i found his uh examples of spies to be very fascinating as far as using freud using j edgar hoover and then using stalin as well and just him at the front uh, of the classroom talking about how important it is to glean knowledge and everything while a picture of stalin is behind him it's just like okay when he's giving that lecture, I love uh, I love it when he says uh, that a guilt-ridden voyeur is usually a political conservative. So uh, <laughs> something to think about too. <laughs> the first spy idea is interesting with the baby. I, I thought that was uh, the, because then it's a direct relation to the the fact that the narrative is fragmented. Because if we're all spies, we only get to see what we're present for, and we'll never know what happens when we're not there. We can never know someone's past. We can never know what happens when they walk out of the room. You know, and I think that says a lot about how the film's structured. Well, again, you know, talking about who are our narrators, who's telling us the story. So there are times where we are seeing things that we really shouldn't be seeing. Like there's a, a moment where we're seeing uh, Stefan back in uh, uh, Czechoslovakia, and he's got a woman in his apartment with him, and it looks like they're, you know, post-coital. And I'm just like, there's no reason why we should be seeing this, because this isn't alex's memory and this isn't the inspector's investigation so it was just kind of a strange thing for us to be seeing unless it's just kind of one of their thoughts as far as what is happening alex's i imagine as far as what is happening because now alex about 39 minutes into the film we realize that he is a literal spy when we have the introduction of william hootkins as uh this army guy whose his sole responsibility it seems is to be able to open up a cabinet uh hand out dossiers and then close the cabinet <laughs> yeah and again like possession that's probably for me the least the least effective part of both films is you know in possession at some of the you know some of the thing with the spies and them talking to him it's so ambiguous you know it's it, it's so veiled and then in this it's the same when they have this one sequence they're the two parts that kind of for me seem the most extraneous to what the rest is the core is about 
Well, yeah, and unfortunately, there's no man with the pink socks on this one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I always love to see William Hootkin show up in anything, you know, so it's always great. And I was picturing this as being like, you know, maybe his job post, you know, sending Indiana Jones out to find the Ark. You know, he, yeah. he, he aged well from the 40s up until the, the late 70s when he's sending uh, uh, Art Garfunkel on this mission. Yeah, I will say that that one shot where she sees him putting the folder away, hiding it when she comes in, that's that's a beautiful moment. It's I, I don't know if it's a put a quick. It's almost like a crash zoom, but it's an edit, and it moves so fast to a close up of her eye noticing it. It's it's really really a great moment. Yeah, I love those uses of well, of course, of the edits themselves, but those little zooms that they're doing throughout the rest of the film, like when uh, Alex asks her if she's ever been married, and we get that nice zoom in on her as she says that she hasn't been, and it's just like, oh, okay, it's so judging some- her, the zoom shots judging her, <laughs> it's kind of great. Well, yeah, especially if Alex is, if this is through Alex's recollection, it's just like, look at this is when she lied to me. Going back to him talking in that classroom. I love that one of the next scenes is them talking and him apologizing for being too nosy. And I'm like, this is the only time you're apologizing for being nosy because the rest of the film, especially once he gets the assignment, he is just asking her question after question after question. He is so concerned about how many lovers she's had in the past. Has she been married? Who's this boyfriend? Who's this guy at the bar? Who's this other guy? Who was that guy that dropped her off in the car? Who are these guys in Morocco that are taking his there? Can't you get rid of these guys? He's just so, so possessive of her. Yeah, it seems to be um, kind of that idea about love in general that not just possession and, and objects and uh, which I think is the you know kind of obvious in the film, but it's also about like any realistic relationship. I think that two people fall in love, and sometimes it's uh, the very thing you loved about someone that you slowly chip away at changing unconsciously, and and then by at a certain point that's not there anymore, and then therefore you may stop loving them. And it, it, to me, it's 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 a very sad trait of relationships, and it, and it's you know very insidious the way it creeps in. But this is a much more overt handling of that in a sense. Well, his character is fascinating to me because he's just a study in contrast because he's so the on the one side you get he's so clinical, but on the other side he's so possessive, and it's yeah. it's just uh it's just it's such so such a wide contrast to me. Well, it could be, but it could be parts of the same thing, right? Like he is so controlled, and that he is—it's almost like this challenge to him now to go into her world and try to pull her into his control. You know, it's—it's it's just like all obsession. If you, it's going to destroy the thing, the object. You know, at the heart of uh, obsession will always be destroyed. So, well, and then he's like literally trying to destroy her at some parts. That crazy moment that I'm thinking again is his kind of inner thoughts where. She finally admits to being married, and, uh, you know, she's like, well, I didn't think it was important. Why didn't you tell me you were married? (sighs) I, um, didn't. You sort of lie, though, you know? A relative is what you said was over the border. I told you I was married. You'd think it meant your way, and it wasn't like that, so better I... I don't think it was a lie. It's words. It's not important. Not important? Nope. To whom?
That important to whom? David. To whom? To whom? <laughs> to whom? <laughs> to whom? <laughs> important to whom? To whom? To whom? Strangling her, yeah. And then, like, cut back again, and he's not strangling her. And I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's definitely uh, Alex's inner desires coming out there. That's kind of crazy. That was a great moment. I, there, I've actually, on that, I found a really cool quote by uh, the writer Udolf from some book, and he just said, what Alex basically wants is to devour her. <laughs> and that word devour is pretty ferocious. <laughs> but, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's true, I think. I mean, and look, the movie, I kept thinking this viewing more than anything, and, and like almost all my notes ended up becoming segued into this idea was just the shades of vertigo. You know, I kept thinking about this film, two people who both have jobs that are for good, that help people, don't acknowledge how dark you know, the dark force in, inside them and basically through obsession they and not inability to control a situation or a person end up destroying it. And it's and there's so many connections all the way through that I, I, I was like watching the uh, – my favorite scene actually this time was the key scene on the stairs where she gives it to him. You know, she says, you want it? Here it is. Take it, you know. And if you watching it this time and never noticed it, it has a shot from behind her head. Her hair is in a perfect spiral exactly – like the fashion vertigo and she and she undoes it and when she undoes it and she lies down and it's just like the transformation scene w- where she walks through the green light uh and which is effectively kind of a, a, a you know its own kind of rape of um you know it's it's i mean they're very weird this idea of almost necrophilia in both films you know one symbolic he wants to make love to a dead woman so he resurrects someone else to be her and then in our one it's basically literal you know it's it's dark <laughs> it's pretty dark stuff I love that that whole scene on the stairway is almost through the inspector's point of view because we get these shots back to him and him looking down and like I, I can't remember at one point he even says like you know right again he's seeing everything that could be true or not true but it's through his interpretation of this like when he comes into the room uh, into her room and and his uh, coworkers just like oh what a mess and we have just seen the scene where uh, she has cleaned up the room for Alex. You know, it's just like you know, she uh, even put on the white sheets, his favorite kind of sheets. Her sheets are usually purple. And again, like this whole color thing, he wants to, you know, tune her down to you know being completely bland, wants her room to be completely clean. And he's just like, he can't take this messy room. If you go into his house or his apartment, all of his books are completely, you know, well uh placed on the shelves, whereas hers are just kind of you know stacked every which way on her shelves or laying on the bed and these kind of things. So it's that night where she's showing him how she's making this effort. Again, she's making this wonderful effort. Like, look at what I've done for you. I've even put on your favorite sheets. And since she won't have sex with him, that's what starts the whole uh, stairway conversation and her oh my god that performance on the stairwell is just great and the, and then we get the kind of echo of that a little bit later on when they are kind of reconciling when she comes back after that scene at the uh, the university that we we're talking about and we get another stairwell scene but in that one I noticed that she's on the bottom and he's on the top as they're going up the stairs as, as opposed to vice versa, where she seemed to be in control before she was the one at the top of the stairs. I also like the idea of 
these characters that shouldn't hear each other reacting to one another. Like at one point, the inspector does say something in her apartment, and then we get a reaction from Alex in another scene, like he's heard the inspector, or bits where there are good memories, and we'll cut back to Melina on the operating table, and she'll smile. And it's just like, wow, these are just nice little moments of how they're connecting these things, almost as if maybe that's her memory or, you know, it's just passing through her transom at that same time. Well, with Natusel and uh, and um, Alex, it definitely seems to be, you know, part of the t- purposeful twinning that they're doing, you know, in, in the way they're designed and dressed. And and really, I, I mean, I wouldn't have picked it up from watching as from reading that, you know, that he has a Harvard, Natusel has a Harvard degree and it was in athletics, which <laughs> which made us <laughs> lessons than the other guy, but that he was trying <laughs> to be like him. And, and it almost, those p- point of view shots you're showing about, like on the stairs where we see the detective, it almost does feel like it's his him imagining what went down uh in these things and it shows that his mind is very attuned to uh alex's that they they think very similarly and i i, I kept thinking and maybe he's had a very similar relationship that maybe and then well i started almost thinking maybe he had a relationship with her but you know there's no evidence of that in the film but that part where he talks about these people who live in chaos you know they they're like a disease they spread it to everyone around them definitely had a lot of judgment and almost was it was almost garfunkel's inner thoughts that he was vocalizing so it's really interesting that that relationships uh, and all the kind of transference going on yeah and Tussel, his office again very very ordered and it was crazy to me that they're both looking at the same picture like art garfunkel hangs it up on the wall and then harvey keitel takes it down in his office it's just like yeah these guys are definitely cut from the same cloth and something I noticed this time around too uh, was, and I'm sure you guys picked up on it. Uh, a lot of the uh, the the books that the characters are reading are uh, things that relate to Rogue in real life, like the Sheltering Sky. I think he had wanted to make a film out of that at one point, and uh, and we see Melina with that uh, book in her hand at one point, and there's uh, also uh, a Harold Pinter book uh, lying around at one point. So uh, there's, I, I noticed there's a lot of uh, things that he's mentioned in interviews that uh, were things that he uh, had some interest in making into future projects that didn't pan out or there was references there. I thought that's kind of interesting too. So Yeah. There's also a, a great uh, Czech writer called Milan Kundura who his, his books are almost exactly like what bad timing's about. So I don't know if, you know, if that's just totally random coincidence, but the fact that we're at the Czech border, I also, yeah, I totally agree. I, I picked the sheltering sky one too. That was, it's, it is interesting. And to bring those as direct references to, it almost brings in the narratives, of what those books are about into your story, which is interesting. If you want to say that you're reaching a little bit when it came to Harry Lyme, <laughs> uh, being the older, you know, Denim Elliot, one of the things that I got from that, picture that both uh, Alex and Natusil had, it almost looks like it's a maze with like three balls on it. And I kept thinking of that game that you play where you've got the the ball bearings in um, on a map or on some on a picture, and you're trying to get them into all the holes, and you're just trying to move it around. And I was thinking of um, I want to say it was the detective from Laura who has one of those. And so then, of course, I think Laura, I start thinking of obsession again and obsession with the woman in the painting and then finding out that the woman in the painting isn't 
what she's supposed to be cracked up to be. And so I immediately started thinking, well, we've got the painting, we've got the, you know, the, the Klimt paintings and everything. And so that's where my mind was going with this thing. And so another the, Vertigo reference of a painting of a woman who's not who she is meant to be. Yeah, you are right on when it comes to the vertigo stuff because I was uh, especially yeah that twirl of her hair and everything, and then the use of color too. I mean, vertigo has almost like garish color, and we have the whole idea of um, the woman in that particular colored suit and everything. You know, the gentleman really knows what he wants, like this kind of stuff, <laughs> and color just playing again such a huge role in there. I mean, we we talked a little bit about the the Lucher color test and everything, and you know the colors uh Elena's always dressed well almost always dressed in something very vibrant until alex starts to really kind of get his hooks into her and then we get that great crazy moment towards the end of the film where she is completely drained of color when he comes in and she is you know saying goodbye to the old melina hello to the new melina and she's wearing this white pancake makeup she looks like an extra from a terayama film or something <laughs> I'm just like, wow, this, th- that moment just blew my mind the first time I saw it. When you think uh, this is a bad timing could very well be the movie uh, Hitchcock would have loved to have made. You know, he, he in every interview and every, anything we've ever read about him is he always wanted to push the envelope, but because of his, you know, studio relationships, it, it never was going to happen. So Vertigo's the sublimated version, right? It's the, uh, the pared down version where it's all under the surface, but in bad timing, Rogue can push all those things. The, the sexuality, he can show it. Even if it's just for yeah. a second, he can show, uh, you know, he can show genitalia. I mean, the, the things that I think were really on Hitchcock's mind. Like, re- I think he really, <laughs> I think he, I would be, I'd love to know what he thought of bad timing just as much as i'd love to see an interview with rogue talking about the influence of vertigo if you know if it was over you know well yeah and when you think of vertigo as being like kind of a metaphor for the way that directors can change their actors and make them do what they want to do it's funny that rogue and then russell would get together in real life afterwards right right, just like hitchcock would have dreamed with tippy you know i think there's a lot of really interesting things behind the scenes in the casting of this film and how you place the real light the person who really is the character in these in this film i think both characters contain the characters that we see on screen inside themselves and i think that's why it works so well now i love sissy spacek but i can't say that I could see her playing Melina. Yeah, with Bruno Ganz, right? That that doesn't make any sense. Those mm. two do, no. It wouldn't have fire. There'd be no fire there. People were actually ragging on Art Garfunkel's performance, but I thought that he gave a, just a terrific performance in this. I thought that he was everything that he needed to be in this movie. Yeah, and I think he's good in carnal knowledge, too. I think there's a certain range... That as long as he's in that range, he's he's really really strong. And I think you know, I think he was relating. That's what I'm getting. I think he could really relate, and you could see I, both of them, but especially Garfunkel could get lost in this role. And then obviously we know there's this you know a story you know that that towards the end of shooting that connects him to his real life tragedy with Laurie Bird. For those who don't know, I guess. <laughs> yeah. When I think Laurie Bird, I think of her and Monty Hellman together, which is funny because Monty Hellman, he, he's almost got the, uh, exactly. the same hair. Yeah, the exact hair. That was her. <laughs> she she was obsessed by men with the big curly froze. <laughs> that was her vertigo. <laughs> no, it is very. It's very strange that. that, that, that but then that in mirrors. So Lori Bird, for those who don't know, is uh, you know the actress. Actually, my other favorite episode you did was on Two Lane Blacktop. Uh, but Lori Bird, you know, who's one of the stars of that, the Monty cast 
based on um, I think just seeing her on the street or something. It was something really random from memory, and uh, they they ended up in a relationship, and then eventually she was with Garfunkel, and towards the uh, end of the film, she actually died by overdosing on pills. You know, just after he's shooting a scene where the main character is overdosing on pills, and it's you know. This, this, I, I think it really translates into the end of this movie. Like when you think about that, if somebody did that to you, that you would, you would be obsessed for the rest. Of, you're, you're trapped for the rest of your life in thinking about that person and what happened to them when you weren't there. I mean, I can only think of how much worse the Garfunkel's real life, you know, than the, what the character suffering in the film. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Why did I think that Laurie Bird threw herself out of a window? Uh, she, I think her mother did, and I think. I think I, I did too. I, I did defenestration, right? That's the only reason I knew what that word meant. <laughs> I was looking up Laurie Bird. Well, because in the in the film, she threatens that Teresa Russell threatens to throw herself out of uh, the window, and I don't know if that's just random. But then I think I, I think on Wikipedia, I think it says that Laurie Bird's mother also died from a suicide, and I think it was that was how it was. But it was from pills. Yeah, I, I had that missed memory too, actually. Well, and then also the whole bird thing. I mean, because Melina is just, like I said before, she's just so associated with those birds. She's even got like the big blue bird as one of those pendants. I love just watching her pendants throughout this film and seeing the different things like the face, the hand, the, you know, the, the different bird ones. She's got so many interesting things going on. And again, calling attention to the neck, you know, and this whole idea of like, you know, Alex wanting to put basically a collar around her neck and then. And we get the the literal um, attention to her neck when she's get, getting the tracheotomy and that big scar that we have at the end of the film, which I can't remember which writer it was, but somebody was just like, this might be the only time where we're not inside of somebody else's memory. This might be the only true moment of the film is that ending scene. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense because we're not hearing this from Alex. We're not necessarily in through uh, Nestusil's investigation, this seems to be that moment of truth that we were looking for. Yeah, it's, it seems to be like um, what the when Rogue really excels in the. I feel like he had like a four to five film run where he's just one of the most interesting filmmakers in the history of film, uh, and then it kind of you know it obviously peters out somewhat. But I think it's making films unconsciously, and there really are so few directors because I think largely because of the cost involved in making movies. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to do. But like looking at him and Lynch uh, and and a few others who really are, are a lot of these things I think are probably coming from the actors. This this analogy of the bird like stuff can be this could be coming from the director who might have met Laurie, could have talked to Garfunkel about his life, and just unconsciously a lot of these things could be projecting themselves back into the work that they're doing. And I I think that's where Rogue really deserves credit is the way he doesn't um, you know he doesn't really rehearse, doesn't really block, doesn't do he's never done a storyboard, he said, in his career. And that for for somebody who started as a cameraman and a cinematographer, that's very interesting. It's a very dangerous uh, and exciting approach to filmmaking, I think. You definitely feel his connection to the material uh, in those first five films. I mean, they're they're obviously very personal. Uh, you 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 know, he's often said that he kind of nurtured those uh, the films from inception, from an idea and getting together with a writer. And uh, and you certainly feel the the passion in every frame. I think, and especially those first five works that he that he churned out. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's also the difference, I guess, if you make something where you're exploring ideas to find something out versus to make a movie 
that has a meaning. You know what I mean? Like I get the feeling he doesn't know the answers and he, he sees himself in these characters. And it's like he's trying to figure something out just like we're trying to figure out his movie. And that's pretty strong compared to just, you know, if he knew exactly what he was trying to say, I don't think the results would be the same. Seeing the first meeting of Alex and Melina and what they have in their hands and he's playing with this uh, uh, little pen knife and stuff and we get this pen knife throughout the film him constantly like tapping it and everything and that really plays a role in into the end it takes us into that investigation that Harvey Keitel's character is doing it's that missing three hours what happened between 1015 and 115 when he finally calls and I have to say that that uh, Natusil could probably give Lieutenant Columbo a run for his money. He is probably one of the best investigators, and especially one of the most empathetic investigators, the way that he's able to put together these large scenes in his head of how things are going. But then we have the little clues, like the the radio station that turns off at a specific time and these kind of things. It's just like, okay, yeah, he really knows what he's doing. And he finally takes us into what happened during that period of time where uh, we uh, can't pin down Alex as to when he got the call and when he ended up calling for the ambulance. And that scene is just, I really didn't think that we were going to go there. The first time that I watched the film, that was a very big surprise for me. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty shocking. It's, and it's hard to shock, you know, modern audiences, even, you know, even then, I think. Uh, there's a quote on, uh, I have, I, I think I told you about it at some point, but Rogue put out a book last year, um, a great, really just kind of, it's, it's, it reads just like his, you know, films do. It's called The World's Ever Changing. And it's, you know, kind of him reflecting on all his films. But uh, just before the bad timing chapter, it has this quote by Yeats, which is just, sex and death are the only things that can interest a serious mind. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of the whole movie <laughs> in a nutshell, right? Well, you talk about that ending. I mean, uh, to me, one of the most powerful moments in the film is when uh, he's just sitting there trying to decide whether he wants to follow his gut instinct while she's unconscious you know and he's he's debating about what he should do and that just uh, that's to me just incredibly powerful well that's definitely the the one moment where he can possess her fully you know he has been trying to pin her down trying to cut away those feathers for throughout the rest of the film and here he finally has her completely uh at his mercy uh, and it's just disgusting he's trying to reduce her to an object because he can't control the real person he, you know he's, he's and and it's just i think the darkest part and it really came across this time when i was younger i it's weird this will sound awful but i didn't really think much about the rape afterwards like i just took in the whole movie but watching it this time because it really builds to that it's it's just such a a powerful thing to realize that you know him saying i love you is so dark in those moments it's the only time he sh- he shows his true self in it and uh you know i'm sorry to make it at all political but it really actually made me think somewhat of the psychology if you know in the bill cosby case where you have somebody uh who can only let's say it's true who can only be sexually active by drugging someone because perhaps that's the only time you can reveal yourself you know which is incredibly sad and twisted you know yeah and no point have we really 
gone past his veneer. You know, he's always the man in the tweed suits and the gray suits, the full, you know, solid color kind of thing. I think we've only ever seen him kind of relaxed in Morocco, and otherwise he is always so buttoned down. And this is the one time where we get to really go past that and see the true Alex, and then to find out that the true Alex is really a monster. A monster whose POV yeah. we've been stuck in, so it's hard to, you know, so we've kind of mm-hmm. built some empathy there, but, and then that has that great montage, visually one of the best part moments in the movie leading up to the decision to do it, where he's just, it's cutting and he's doing the dancing and the Moroccan music and everything's just intensifying. It's almost titillating us to go with him on this moment, which is, you know, pretty disturbing to be pushed into that uh, position. I mean, this movie is so visually rich. You know, I've talked about the colors, I've talked about the cutting, all these kind of things. But if you just turn off the the picture and just listen to the sound, you know, I talked about that um, clock ticking earlier. But then after they go to Morocco, uh, you really start to hear those Moroccan sounds a lot more throughout the soundtrack. Like you'll just hear like those women, what is the word, ululating kind of thing, uh, like in different parts of it. And you're just like, well, that that's kind of a strange place to put that in there, but it's definitely evoking something. And then, yeah, that use of the Moroccan music as we get closer and closer and just really kind of manic, it's like, yeah, wow, this, there, there's, it, this movie operates on every level. It's also because he turned it off. Remember, he comes in that one time where she's enjoying herself and enjoying the music, and he comes in and turns off her music And she said, when she was drunk and says, how, why? And then he just says, exactly, <laughs> how, why? <laughs> like, he's just such an asshole. <laughs> but, but it's interesting that later that same music is kind of used to free him. And so this idea of transferring that he's kind of trying to become more like her and she, he, she's never able to become like him. It's, it's really, you know, it, it's one of those movies you'll never pin it down. It's just like, you know, it, it's really uh, exactly what's happening to his character is what's happening to us as an audience in relation. Not everyone, obviously. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But for a lot of us who respond to it, I think we become that obsessed viewer we become obsessed with trying to find this meaning we'll never completely be able to derive i mean yeah i don't mean to sound overly dramatic or anything but i feel like i could watch this movie a hundred times more and still get so much more out of it yeah yeah i I agree i think because i don't think you'll ever solve it i mean we we can you know obviously have all these ideas that are are good and it's just like and i think that's very similar to possession and some other movies out there that you know they they have a very i think it might be not just that they have a secret it's that they're being made by someone who it's deeply personal to, and that personal part, the part that, like, you know, if it's about, say, Zulowski's actual, you know, ex-wife and all these things that we don't know as viewers, that that's a little thing we can't access. And I think maybe that goes a long way. Truly, this whole movie is a metaphor for the making and unmaking of Flash Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. That's a beautiful idea. Which was the film that Teresa Russell, uh, she says that uh, she took this movie over auditioning for Superman. Oh, wow. So their manager was pushing her, pushing her, pushing her to take the Superman, that it was going to happen. She was in Last Tycoon, and she read uh, Bad Timing, and it just blew. She said that's all she ever wanted to do as an actress was something like that, something with that kind of meat, you know, which is fascinating. Because you know, it's they, you don't build them like that often. <laughs> we talked about the timing a little bit earlier and everything. And, and if you wanted to be really super surfacey with your reading of this film, you could just say, "Oh, bad timing." That just refers to when uh, Alex is about to uh, confess towards the end of the movie, and then he kind of gets an out. And if only Nedzil had another. 
30 seconds or whatever, he could have gotten his man. That that would be the cheapest way to say that this movie is called Bad Timing and why it's called Bad Timing. And I love that there are – you can read it like that if you want to. If you just want to stay on the surface, go right ahead. You can say that that's why this movie is called Bad Timing. But there's so many other – constant i mean I, I, the, I think the one the rogue particularly mentioned where it was just the idea that if you you know if you go to a party and you leave two minutes earlier you never would have met the person you know it, it, and that it's bad timing that they actually met <laughs> yes <laughs> so unfortunately they, they met because they destroyed each other you know it's uh i actually think one of the most interesting was the idea of bad timing as evidence to convict him which is the cigarettes you know that that he wasted all this time you know before he actually went to save her and then he's smoking in the car and smoking and smoking and then you leave physical evidence behind which is you know which is poor timing on on his part because the time and then the radio station finishing at 12 all those things are bad timing on his part you know because they actually rack up evidence against them if there was a Mm -hmm. case which is interesting you know all right, we are going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is with screenwriter Yale Udolph, the second with editor Tony Lawson, and the third with director Nicholas Rogue, after these brief messages. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Here are just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, you know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, Bernie Torpin here, and when I'm not 
undermining Venezuela. I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Imri Stunt Double, and when I'm not wanking for tumours, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there, I'm Ali Sheedy, and when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. You went to Michigan State. Are you a uh, Michigander, or where did you no, grow no, up? I'm from New York. I grew up in Brooklyn. No, I had nothing to do with uh, <laughs> Michigan. With Michigan, but I went there uh, because I got out in January, and, and I didn't want to wait. You know, and there were not that many schools that I could find that would, uh, you know, let me start in February. And uh, I, they did, so I, I took that. Indiana also did it. But I don't know why I wanted to go to Indiana. I was a pretty good basketball player. I figured I could play at Michigan State, but uh, that didn't work out. I played on the freshman team for about 10 days, and that was it. I had a great shot, but I couldn't rebound, and I, <laughs> I was slow. How did you get into writing? I was a history and political science major, and I don't you know I didn't start really writing. I, I wrote stories after I left the army and came to New York and lived in this small apartment with this crazy old Polish lady in Queens. You know, one room, and I was working at that time. I mean, after I was Michigan State and I was in the army. And I came back, I went to Georgetown Law School for one year, which I spent most of my time going to foreign films. Law school and I were not meant for each other. Then I left after the first year. The good fathers uh, it required that I leave, I think. <laughs> but I left willingly. Went to New York and uh, got a job in the mailroom at NBC. Now, here I was, a, uh, I was about 23 at that time, 24, something like that. And, you know, a college graduate, one year in law school, working in the mailroom. But it's the way you moved up and, uh, you, you know, you, you, a lot of guys started at, uh, uh, agencies. They become an assistant and from there they move up. I started there and I was trying always to get into production. I was in the, uh, you know, I was in the mailroom and then I quit and went, I got a job at ABC. Which was in the mail, which was in in sales, which I hated. But at that time, I started to write. I was writing uh, a short story, and I wrote film criticism, which got published and was called The Seven Thoughts Film Quarterly. Published one or two of my pieces. Uh, a number of film quarterlies, most of them are no longer in existence. I wrote a long piece for Fight and Sound. They never published it on Truffaut, and how he had gone bad. I thought by being too much influenced by Hitchcock when he was one of the quintessential humanists of all time in film. He was, you know, but he loved, uh, he loved Hitchcock. And uh, then, uh, you know, I was always in love with the movies. 
I kept writing, and I got like 40 rejections on one story, and my novel that I wrote at that time almost got published. And I always wondered, how would that have changed my life? Now I feel, I look back at my first play, which I wrote, and which I hated the theater. I wrote something, you know, I thought it was so boring. I, I wrote a play that, you know, I thought everyone would like, that I would like. You know, I didn't care about everyone, me. And it won the Family Drama Award. And after that, I wrote a full-length play, and it became a big success, you know, great success. Uh, I don't know if you've gone to my site, the reviews are there from the New York Times, it's eelheedoff.com. And uh, I was, you know, always going to foreign films. I loved foreign films. That was the great time in New York in the 60s. You had the Thalia, uh, all these art theaters, the art, the 8th Street. And like 8th Street would do uh, two weeks of Renoir. And the art would do three weeks of Bergman or Kurosawa. So you could see all their films in a, uh, you know, a short period of time. And they really had an effect on me. And then... Then the, the the great thing, I mean, the thing that ruined my life the way it happened. I walked into the Beekman on, like, I think it's like, uh, the Beekman is on 2nd Avenue, I think, in New York. And I sat down to see the film, and I was overwhelmed. I really didn't, although I had read a lot of Italian literature, Moravia, all those people, Pavese, all the existential stuff in French, France, also. And I saw this film, and I didn't really understand it, but I was so blown away by its beauty, and I thought, now, this film is the equal, could be the equal of, uh, of literature, though I don't still believe that in a different way, you know, but that was love and tour. That changed my life. I decided then and there, film was going to be my life one way or another, and uh, I kept writing film reviews and all that. And then I quit. I was uh, director of nighttime programming at ABC in New York. I had come up with the idea to do Batman. I didn't write any of them at the beginning. I wrote one when I came here, but they never did that. And uh, so I came up with that idea, and they gave me a $5 raise. But that wasn't the reason I quit. I couldn't stand the uh, the corporate life. I didn't like it. And uh, so I came out here uh, to L.A., and had a very rough time, you know, for a couple of years. And uh, I was also, uh, I'm giving all my stuff to Michigan State. They have a lot of it so far. I haven't given them my journals and notebooks yet. I've given them my letters, a lot of my letters. I'm an inveterate letter writer. I must write 500 letters a year. But, and, you know, and uh, uh, I keep them. <laughs> and uh, I know it's not everyone's posterity. I don't. I just write them. Because I love writing letters, you know. You can find out a lot about yourself, et cetera, et cetera, and reveal a lot about yourself. And it's a great art form. And I also, as I said, uh, I have been reading Gide, and I, I've gotten love with the journals, and I've kept journals ever since. Though recently I don't anymore because I do all of my letters. In any case, uh, I did a couple. I did uh, I did a man from Uncle. Uh, I did a couple of things in television. Not a lot because I was never good at coming up with stories for for shows that uh, I was only really good at writing what came out of me. You know, like a novelist. I guess I I I, I couldn't. I was never good at plotting something out beforehand. I it always I just started and. You know, many times, 
most of it, I would say 50% of the times when you stop, you do right that way, you find yourself in an empty room with the door locked and you can't get out, you know. Uh, but I think that way is the way that produces great stuff, I think. But I love, I love the Steve, I love thrillers, I love the, you know, Chandler and the great writers, you know, I, I love that stuff. But I'm just not able to do it. I, I've done it. When you work in television, you've got to do it because, you know, they got stars, they want to know, and I've done it. But it's not the best stuff I've ever done. Uh, the best stuff, my, my, my favorite script, the one I, that Nick Rowe read, called Dangerous Characters, about a writer whose characters come to life and almost kill him. Uh, I didn't know what I was writing, writing, and then at the end, I sat down and I outlined what I had read, as what I had written, you know, uh, scene by scene, and saw where I was over, blah, 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 blah. And I have rewritten that thing two other times, and I was supposed to direct it in the middle 90s. I had Armin Asante, and I think Harvey Keitel would have been a small role. Maybe I would have gotten Teresa for just a, a very, you know, two-page scene. But they, they couldn't get the money for it at that time. Since then, it's almost been done by, you know, many times, and it's still available, and, you know, and, uh, but it's so difficult to get films off the ground, especially at my age. I'm no more 25, so I don't, and then my agent retired and all that, and all I put it on the blacklist, and I got a terrific review. Uh, it's very difficult if you're not connected, like either in a TCEI with a film school, where you get these young directors who come out, or have a major agency that's got a lot of people who want to work, and they say, yeah, we're looking for, like, Canal Reeves. It's not working much. Well, uh, you know, who'll do this film for $5 million? I mean, uh, for a budget of six million, he'll take two million because he loves you know, but that it's very difficult for that to happen. Uh Rogue I thought was gonna direct this film when he first met me, but he didn't and I went on to do bad timing for him. And I'm still very much in contact with him. You know, I really he's a wonder he's a great guy. Wonderful guy to work with and uh just a terrific man. Now how did you two uh, meet? Well at that time, when I worked at ABC, I met a young guy named Larry Gordon, who was working, came up from the South. He became out like Aaron Spelling's gopher and all that. And I met him at that time, and I got him a job at ABC, where he worked for a while. And then he left ABC, and I left ABC. And he became, he wrote, he wasn't really writing, he wrote a thing or two. Then he got into studios, and he worked at New Line, uh, not a new line. He wrote. He worked at that. Uh, I forgot what it was. Uh, I, I wrote. A, I wrote Scream Blackula Scream for them. <laughs> Rewrote it. Uh, I forgot what it was called. It was one of the original cheapies, and they did very well. And uh, then he moved on up. He was the head of. He was the head of Paramount for a while, but he was the head of Fox, and he was the head of Fox. I saw he was doing a film. Uh, Nick Rogue was some kind of girly film, and I thought to myself, that'll never happen. And I had seen a couple of Rogue films, so I called him up, and I said, Larry, would you get Nick Rogue my script for Dangerous Characters? And he did, he got it to him, and I, that other film fell apart. And then I didn't hear for, say, two, three months, and I got a call one day from Nick Rogue, and he talks to Mr. Udolph, this is Nick Rogue. 
I'd love to go script. Would you be interested in working with me? No, no, I don't want to work with you. So, <laughs> you know, I met him. I met him. We had a great meeting, and uh, he had this thing that he wanted to do. And it was originally supposed to be in Berlin, either Rome, or uh, and we we met and we talked about it. And I wrote the script pretty quickly, as I remember. I remember we were casting for the lead. And I was there with him, and uh, the lady, the only two actresses we actually saw were the lady, wonderful actress, who I never promised you, Rose Gardner. She was the lead in that very attractive, wonderful actress. She was in the Tom, uh, Tom Cruise picture of uh, the, the coming uh, Tom Cruise out of space. She was the wife. She was a wonderful actress. You can look her up in Rose Garden. And then in came Teresa. And as soon as she came in, I knew she had the job. <laughs> and that was it. And then, uh, you know, it took a while because Ponte was the original producer and he he didn't really go forward. And Nick got it with Jeremy Thomas. And I did some more work on it. And then they went to, uh, I, I was in Vienna uh, making some final changes. And I'll never forget one night, about three days before they had cast with Harvey, I got a knock on the door and Harvey Keitel comes <laughs> to me. And yeah, I'm a member of the actor's studio. I know actors. I, mean, I, I know how they are. <laughs> Harvey Keitel makes this kind of freaking yell. Yeah, I said, sure, come on in. He comes in and he says, you know, I think I should be doing the arts, arts role. I think that. I mean, I really think I'd be good in that. If you want to talk to Nick about it, I said, listen, boy, <laughs> you know the writer has no <laughs> influence on I mean, they're not going to listen to it. And it's like two days before shooting. Harvey, you know, maybe you would be. You, you know, I don't know, but uh, I, no, I can't do that. You know, I, it was just a, you know, a momentary urge on his part. And then the film got made. And, uh, you know, it's it's been around now for 35 years, and it's still a lot of people. Uh, this guy did a thing. He's a, he did a thing for, uh, was on television, history of the film. What, what was it on? Showtime or HBO. He ranks it as the second best all-time film. I must say, I said to myself, what about the rules of the game? What about eight and a half? <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's nice to, for, for someone to think like that. So, you know, that's where it, uh, and I've been in contact with him ever since, and, you know, he's older than I am, and I, I don't think he's going to be making any more films. You know, he's made a great body of work, and if you get his, uh, did I say this to you? If you get his, uh, like a friend of mine just loaned me uh, no, uh, the Venice film, and uh, it's in Blu-ray, and it has a long interview with uh, Anthony Richmond, the photographer who did Bad Timing, and Graham Clifford who cut it, but he didn't cut you know, Bad Timing. But it's, it's uh, you know, you really get a feeling for him and how he, how he is. And, and uh, you should watch it if you get a chance. When you guys first start talking about doing this story, how does it begin and how does it change into what we finally know as Bad Timing? They gave me something that they said Pompey had dictated. It was a story that took place in Rome. It was about a playboy. It was uh, it was all it was not well written, and uh, I didn't believe that he wrote it though. And I, I, they never told me more than that. And so we 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 kept the idea of a police investigation. That was the only thing we kept. 
And I remember going nuts trying to figure out if you see, you know, the film, when the radio program was on, where he was, I had to make a huge <laughs> timeline thing to keep the film, you know, so it made sense about, you know, what he did when he, uh, well, you know, when he raped her, basically. Writing it, you know, was a lot of it, uh, Nick and I would talk about, uh, women and the girl, the scene in the car where she says to her, when she says, to her, oh, I, I had an abortion, you know, matter of factly, that came right from a, a Swedish lady I knew who told me that in such matter of fact, it was just, you know, floored that she would, you know, <laughs> that's it. And um, so, you know, a lot of stuff in there from like the whole scene when they're in uh, Morocco, there and he talks about this house, you know, in New York that he loved and it was gone. That was something I, you know, had noticed. Uh, I used to walk around New York. I loved the old buildings, and this was a beautiful old building. And I was in New York, and I had to go up. I, I was having a play done, I think, at the, the O'Neill, and I came back and it was gone, you know, like that. New York changes. Bang, boom, boom. I wrote it with a lot of cuts. It's one of the reasons we got together. My screenplay, A Dangerous Characters, is written very much with a lot, you know, what's going on in the guy's mind, what happened, what didn't happen, what's real, what's, what's the imagination. It's about the imagination, basically, that it's so real it can kill you. And it's the greatest failure, the greatest disappointment in my life, that and one other play of mine have not gotten made and it hurts, it hurts. But in any case, who knows, might happen one of these days. But then when he edited it, and the editing is where he made a lot of other cuts. You couldn't write with all those things, you know. You'd have a 500-page script, but a lot of it was in it. I remember he took out something that I really liked. <laughs> I, you know, there was a scene when they're on the couch, they're fooling around. He says something and he says, I am here. He says, I am immune to your charms. And she says, well, who said that? Some great, some great shrink. And I, in my script, I said, no, James Bond Thunderball. He took that out because he thought it was, you know, it would be too dated. I always resented that he took that out. Because I thought it was one of the great, one of my favorite lines. But, you know, listen, that always happens. So what are you going to do? You had already been a established writer, you had done a lot of plays already, had won awards and everything, but did bad timing do anything for you for your career? Did it help yeah, open it any did. doors? Yeah, I got work after that for a while, you know. Uh, but, you know, it was considered such an esoteric film that I didn't get that much, you know, because, like, if, if I had written Star Wars, I would work for the next 20 years. But when you write a picture like this, what I should have done at that time immediately is tried to get to direct my film, you know. That's what I should have tried, but I didn't. Because I was always basically, I didn't get much money for that film. I, I got whatever the you know, it was written in England mostly. And uh, I, 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 I didn't get more than 25 grand, I think. And for me, that was great. And it wasn't so much the money, it was to work with him. And after that, I got... I was making like 40, 50, one film I made. Then I, I, I hooked up with an English guy. We, we made, did much better. But, you know, when you write, particularly now, when you write offbeat kind of stuff, you really got to be a director. I mean, all the guys in New York who wrote the, the Jonah, the, the Whale, and whatever. You know, all these younger guys, 
uh, they write and direct. Because if you've got an offbeat voice like I have, it's very difficult to find a director who, you know, wants to work with that voice. Yeah, that's something he wants. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's, that's the way it is. I, 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 I never made a lot of money in the business. I did, you know, but I, 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 I had a bunch of films that I had, mostly that I had written with other people, uh, more, you know, mainline kind of, uh, uh, buddy films or, you know, high adventure films that almost got made. Two with my, my partner who died in a fire, third degree burn, and even destruction, which got made. But, uh, the two or three other ones I wrote with him, which were better, never got made. And with another partner of mine, I wrote a, a great political thriller, I think. Uh, the central thing was amnesia, and when it was going around, I mean, that was the character's problem. Uh, everyone's trying to kill him, he doesn't know why. When it was going around, that's just when, what do you call it, came out, uh, the first Born trilogy. And the Born trilogy, I must say, I thought it was better than our script, but, you know, it was, uh, that's what it was. And I may even try now to reignite that in terms of maybe something, uh, uh, Showtime or HBO or something like that. It's very difficult, though. It's, once you're over 50, it is very difficult. So, I mean, that's the way it is. It's the same now in the theater. You know, it's uh, ageism is a really discouraging thing in our country, and it's it's rampant in the arts also. Are you still writing every day? Well, right now I'm sending out my new play every day. <laughs> and, and I've got a lot of other things to take care of, uh, trying to get refinanced for my, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it, it gets very difficult. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I think I'm gonna start writing a memoir, but not a, you know, one I'm gonna make up, which is, memoir. how much do you really remember? That's one of the reasons I'm giving, uh, I'm gonna give them my, um, all my notebooks and to, to Michigan State. They have the scripts now and all that because, you know, if I start reading, I just get lost. There's so much material there. Uh, I never thought of that. Well, I wrote them just to write and, you know, have enjoy myself. But I don't, to go through them can get me a little crazy, you know, so I'm not going to worry. Did you end up going to the premiere and everything? And what was that experience like? Oh, uh, did I ever, uh, when to the premiere? No, I think I was in the premiere in New York, but not in London. In London, it opened, I saw it in a regular theater. My late wife was English, so... I always would see Nick, and uh, you know, in New York, it, it got good reviews. It didn't get great reviews. It's 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 a it's a, a film that's built over the years into a real like uh, classic in a sense. It's uh, you know, it was really about men and women. That never dates, I don't think. That's about it. Uh, I wish he would have made dangerous character. That's about it, unless you want to ask me more stuff, you know.
how did you get into editing? Well, actually, I was going to be an engineer when I first uh, thought about anything to do with work. And that didn't work out for me too well. So I kind of didn't know what to do with myself uh, as a young man. And uh, my father, who had been or was then working at the BBC, decided in his wisdom that he needed to get me out of the house while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And he got me the summer job in a, a small documentary film company as a kind of cable monkey and um, T-boy and just general, you know, do whatever I'm told to do, kind of messenger. And so uh, I did that for about, uh, I can't remember, four months or something like that, three or four months. And whenever I wasn't busy, uh, I used to gravitate to the one cutting room uh, uh, It was run by uh, a woman who was always happy to entertain me, I suppose, <laughs> or at least allow me to uh, go in there and talk to her about what she was doing. And I really enjoyed um, the atmosphere as much as anything else. And uh, that's pretty much how it started from there. Now, I imagine you were an assistant editor for a while before you kind of moved up and were able to do cutting on your own. Oh, yes, of course, yes. What were some of those early projects like for you? Well, always great. I had a wonderful time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, uh, being in the uh, cutting room, particularly without the responsibility, is a wonderfully uh, educational uh, way to learn because you get into everything about the film. You understand why things were done, and you're part of, even if you're not actually contributing, you're part of that kind of creative decision-making um, that um, you can draw a lot from. Um, I mean, even if you feel it's the wrong thing, you, uh, you know, you can, you can easily see or you believe you can see what's going on. And, uh, and you can affect things. I mean, there was very early on in my career, I worked on a, a film called um, The Prime Machine Brody, um, with Maggie Smith uh, that Ronald Neen directed. And the editor I was working with at the time um, was uh, one of David Lean's editors. He worked um, on Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zvago, and then Ryan's Daughter, which I worked on as well. So I suppose you would say he was old school um, and had certain rules that um, he adhered to. Uh, um, within the film, there was a sequence which was puzzling them, both the director and, and Norman. And I suggested a way around it um, that challenged them in a way uh, that they found a way to make it work for themselves. So I, it, it, it was a wonderful experience to be able to take part in that kind of creativity uh, and affect things. Now, one of your first gigs that I know of is editing Straw Dogs. How was that experience for you? That was uh, amazing. Again, I worked. Uh, I was going to be the assistant on that. In fact, I was an assistant for a large part of the production part of the period, uh, shooting period. And then uh, one of the editors um, left through, just say, personalities didn't work. And Sam was left in a position where he needed to produce some publicity material, some uh, promotional material. And I was the only person in the editing room, apart from my assistant. So he, he and I worked together over a long weekend, um, putting this material together. And I think from that point onwards, he kind of trusted me in some way. Uh, and then later, um, during the post-production, where um, things were getting um, 
very busy. Um, I stepped in and became one of the editors on the film. Yeah. So he was he was an extraordinary filmmaker. I mean, he's one of those intuitive filmmakers. Um, was rather, and um, he was uh, unafraid of almost anything. In fact, I mean, one, that was one of the things. He was quite scary because he was very uh, violent under the surface. It was never, you know, he never hit anybody that I knew of. But it, but there was that feeling underneath the surface, that, or quite close to the surface, where you felt that um, your life might be in danger at some point or other. Uh, although it wasn't necessarily like that. But you got that feeling from him that he was very um, uh, charged up. Uh, and certainly... Uh, and I'm sure if you've read any of the books or spoken to any of his um, um, colleagues and um, associates, you'll know that he challenged, always challenged authority um, uh, on his films. He placed himself in opposition to what he would call the production, which usually was the uh, producer, and battled them all the time. And I think, in some ways, I think that's how he got his creativity. He got his creativity from that conflict. That level of violence seems almost inherent in something like a straw dogs. Yes, it is. Yes, I mean, it's, it's under the surface, isn't it? And then bubbles up very quickly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was an astonishing film to work on, um, largely because, uh, you know, up until that time, I'd been working on English films, which were tended to be rather more sedate. Um, and uh, to be uh, to meet somebody with that kind of level of freedom and to travel across the sort of the emotional spectrum was astonishing. And that both it was within the filmmaking itself, but also within the subject of the film, of course. Well, it must have been an interesting turn for you then to move on to something like a Barry Lyndon, where yeah. you have another American filmmaker, but who's almost an expatriate, yeah. you know, an American living in Britain all this time. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Uh, well, again, that was a wonderful experience and an astonishing um, sort of learning curve um, and a way of making films that um, I suppose in one sense I was more used to, um, but... Uh, his his method um, was something that was really really challenging because he would not let anybody do anything without his prior knowledge. Um, so he he was quite literally he was the auteur of auteurs in a way. He would have done everything himself if he could have done. Um, uh, it's rather ironic in many ways that he he wished to have done played every role, um, certainly behind the camera at least, um, and yet he often ended up with giant um, crews. Uh, it was an astonishing experience, particularly for somebody as young as I was at that time, um, to be given that kind of control, not control so much, but that kind of uh, insight into a way the way a film was made. I've always wondered about his method, um, and he always seems to produce these rather unjudgmental, unsentimental, observational films. Um, and I think it's it's a mark of a lot of his films that they are that he just shows us the story without comment somehow, and they're all. Um, there's no editorial slant in them. I don't mean editorial in the editing sense, but I mean editorial in the storytelling sense. He never would take the part of a uh, character and and uh, somehow push that person as being um, the hero or something because he used to show 
everybody's good and bad um, sides. He, so it was always it was always interesting to watch his the way he worked and the way he um, chose things, um, chose takes or actors or music, um, because it was always with this kind of slight distance. It put you at a distance um, from the film and allowed you to judge it rather than well not say so, no, perhaps not judge but uh, but allowed you to make up your own mind anyway. Now, Kubrick was famous for doing a lot of takes of a lot of things. Yeah. When the footage comes back to you, does he have it pretty much marked out I want to use this particular take or is there that then the culling process to look at all these takes and figure out which one is the best one to use? Yes, it's uh, he never makes a decision on the set. Uh, every, he prints he printed everything uh, and uh, we would go through the entire um footage shot by shot, ch- take by take, choosing this bit for that, this bit for that. Uh, it was very very laborious in that respect, uh, very time consuming, which is reflected in the post production periods of certainly of the film I worked on, Barry Lyndon. And the um, the post production period was hugely extended. Now I know you were an assistant editor on Don't Look Now. Had you met Nick Rogue before that, or was that your first experience with him? That was my first experience uh, working with him, and again, that was one of those wonderful, liberating moments where um, you meet somebody. Nick is hugely collaborative uh, and and also an intuitive filmmaker. He would listen to everybody, um, not necessarily act upon what they said, but he would listen. Uh, uh, and he made you feel like you were part of the family, in a sense, part of the family making the film. It was a hugely um, uh, engaging uh, experience. Wonderful, um, again, wonderful lesson in in how to enjoy the process, the creative process, and make it um, worthwhile um, to be there at every minute. You know, you wouldn't want to go home almost because you might be, you think you might miss something. So he was tremendous to work with. Um, yeah, I I worked um, on. I don't look now, and uh, we had a really good relationship. In fact, the whole crew had, you know, the whole editing crew had a tremendous, uh, tremendously good relationship with Nick and with uh, with each other. It was a wonderful experience. That yeah. I know editing is so much about the rhythm and really the telling of the story and all this. You know, it's so much of an important part of the final film. But for me. Editing is even more important. It's such a major part of something like a, a bad timing. How did you guys kind of decide how it was going to be cut? What was um, was this film not necessarily made in the editing room, but how much of it kind of came together in the editing room as opposed to was there a linear story at one point and then it was broken into this, or how was time shattered in the editing room? Well, no, the script was was always um, meant to be broken. Um, it, it it was always the, the time frames were all meant to be broken. Um, but I would almost guarantee that nothing in the finished film represented the construction that was indicated in the script. Um, but nevertheless, that was the um, the the. Um, the complex nature was in the script already. It's just that it didn't end up being like the script. We, I mean, this is obviously before electronic editing. Um, 
So any experimentation we did, um, we had to be fairly certain of before we uh, embarked upon it, largely because you can, you know, waste a week rearranging the film, um, changing position of, of, of scenes and uh, interjecting scenes. You could waste a huge amount of time and then come to to realization at the end that it wasn't working, and you'd have somehow have to get back to something that was working. So we used to um, we used to talk about the way we thought about the film, but also we'd literally write um, scenes on a piece of um, there, there there was uh, a little system that we had called a scandex which was literally strips of um, cardboard. And we'd write every scene down and sometimes parts of scenes um, on these strips of cardboard and then move the cardboard around so that we could come up with an, an order um, prior to actually getting into the film. And a large part of that process was looking for thematic links, um, ideas, emotions that would somehow take you from one point to the next something that might seem to be uh, a, a sort of a detour, would we try to find a way to um, make it feel that that wasn't a natural thing to go to rather than a rather arbitrary, uh, might, what might have been um, felt as being rather arbitrary. We used to look for these links, emotional look, emotional feelings within ourselves or that was generated by um, the characters or the story, and um, and use those to tell us essentially where to go um, within the editing. I guess it kind of fits with this whole idea of Freud and it being set in Venice. It's almost like a almost a free association as far as the way that these scenes move from one to another. Yeah, I think that that would be one way of describing it. Yes, yes, it was. That had to have been so complicated. Just like you said, it's not it's not nonlinear. You have the actual strips of film that you're cutting and everything, and just keeping track of all of the different scenes and and pieces of film yeah. at this point. But I mean, that is the part of the job of being an editor. You have to know your material. You have to know what's available. Uh, and I mean, that's one of the interesting things again about Nick is that um, he never felt comfortable with the version that we had, he'd always think, now maybe there's a better way. Um, and so he was never frightened of um, starting again, in a way. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd be quite happy about that. Oh, well, as long as we could get back to something. We often, um, for instance, took a, a log of an edit um, so that we could find our way back to it if we wanted to. But um, he would be unafraid to just say, okay, let's take that out of there and put it somewhere else and do this, that, and the other. And wouldn't it be, should we try doing this, that, and the other? So he was never frightened of doing anything like that. And again, that's quite a liberating uh, thing for an editor. It also has its consequences because you have to be fairly aware of what you're doing uh, all the time. But uh, it was hugely uh, informative for me as an editor. And it's one of the things I've taken with me every you know since uh, on every film is to not be tied by the script the script of course you have to have a script and it's got to be a good script to make a good film but you can use the material within it um, and move it around um, as long as you don't destroy um, something but you never feel that you need to somehow follow some kind of predestined plan um, to be able to take something that uh, 
occurs to you and work with it and maybe um, turn it into something else. So I imagine it's rather safe to say that you and Nick got along fairly well because you went ahead and cut several of his films after that. Yes, yes. I can't remember ten or something, nine or ten films. Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah, we got on very well. We really enjoyed each other's company, and we still do. <laughs> yeah, some of the work that you did with him is just remarkable. You know, just to see something like a Track 29 or, yeah. you know, Castaway. It, I love the way that the stories would come together and non-linearness of the story so affecting the way that we as an audience are understanding what's happening was just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Castaway was an interesting uh, one because it was one of the hardest, I found one of the hardest films to get into, to get a hold of, to get get a handle on, largely because it was pretty much just like a diary uh, of events uh, and we had to somehow sort of stitch them together to get a flow out of them, to get some kind of dramatic flow to them. And it was quite a puzzle for a while. Um, Now it's become one of my favorite films, although sadly it's not seen very often, but I think it's, it's one of those films I really liked in the end. I was very happy to see that you had worked with Dusha Makaveyev, who is another person who just yeah. really pushed montage to its limits, especially in some of his early films. What what was it like working with him on Manifesto? Oh, great. Uh, Dushan was absolutely delightful. He's he's interesting, too, because he he doesn't... We used to talk about it endlessly um, during the editing. Um, Needless to say, he loves to talk. He would not know what he was doing when he was directing. I mean, I don't mean that in the sense that he didn't understand what he was doing, but he he often would uh, uh, look at the uh, dailies or even the edit um, sometime afterwards, and and he'd say, "Oh, I understand why I did that now." <laughs> and so he was he was uh, he used to enjoy um, being kind of free of of too many rules, uh, uh, very much like Nick in some ways. And he would discover why he did something um, after the event, which I thought was quite interesting. I remember one time he took a, a copy of our um, edit in, at that particular point in the editing process home with him one night because he was a terrible sleeper, or is a terrible sleeper, and came back to me in the morning and he said, you know, I discovered something really interesting about this film. And I said, thinking this was going to lead us somewhere, it would give us some kind of clues to what to do. And he said, I counted up all the animals and he, taught, he gave me a list of all the animals that came in the film and how many there were. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was delightful because I have no idea what he meant to do with it, but it was a kind of interesting way to sort of look at something and think, oh, okay. I'm glad to hear that that's kind of the way that he works as far as that, you know, discovery, self-discovery, because he's another one where it feels like so much of his films are almost like, I don't know, visual rhymes when it yeah. comes to one scene versus another. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. He, he, I, I, well, I'm sure that's partly because of his his um, deep interest in, in Freud and uh, in the whole psychoanalysis uh, um, sort of way of life or thinking, yeah. Now, you have worked a ton with Neil Jordan as well. How's that relationship been? Well, that's been great, too. Uh, 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 really in, enjoyable. Um, but he and he and Nick have been uh, tremendous people to work with. You know, both of them actually allowed an enormous amount of space um, 
um, both, you know, I, I would work on my own often um, and then show them what I'd done. I, I remember on a film I worked on with Nick, uh, I think it was Eureka, I was faced with a huge amount of material on one sequence uh, and I thought, oh, and I looked at it all and it was just seemed to be overwhelming and so I thought, I'll go and talk to Nick and see what he had in mind. So I went to speak to him about it and he he said, look, I, I didn't employ you to do what I tell you to do. I want you to tell me what you found. <laughs> That's pretty much how um, both he and, and Neil um, sort of work. I, you, they allow you to find something yourself and then they'll respond to it and, and, uh, and build on that. So it's a hugely um, sort of creative and uh, enjoyable process. You've been cutting for over 50 years now. What are some of the favorites that uh, stand out for you? Oh, God. Uh, well, Bad Timing, definitely. Um, perhaps because it was one of the first films, uh, one of the earlier films that I worked on that I felt really had some kind of... Um, uh, it did something for me, and and it made me feel like I was uh, working... Uh, um, essentially, you know, on my own. Of course, that's not true at all. But I mean, but it made me feel like I was being effective, um, and and I could see what I'd done, and I understood what I'd done. So it it was tremendous um, um, experience from that point of view. So that's one of obviously one of my favourite films. Um, another one would be um, a film I made with Neil called um, The Butcher Boy, which I really um, felt. It somehow worked really well. Everything about the film worked. So I think that's one of my favourites. But I mean, you know, it's it's also it's very hard to separate the film from the experience of making the film. Perhaps a lot of my good memories are associated with films that weren't necessarily that that successful. Perhaps either either critically or um, or, or financially. You know, one film that you made, which. I imagine it got a lot of notice when it came out, but I don't know if it necessarily stuck around, but it did for me, was Dragon Slayer. I really liked the work that you did on that. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. We had a good time making that movie. Yeah, you're right. It hasn't stuck around. It it, it, it was interesting, actually, because we had a preview of Dragon Slayer where our audience um, appreciation scores were huge, were massive. Uh, and then it opened the same week as I believe um, the, the latest, whatever that was, James Bond film opened. There was Indiana Jones opened and something else. I can't remember. Three big box office films opened and they, and Dragon Slayer lasted a week, I think, and just disappeared in the face of that kind of onslaught of films that presumably had a bigger draw. Yeah, it was a good film. That was uh, I enjoyed that. And it still stands up. And the special effects, even for, what was that, 82, yeah. I want to say? Yeah, God, I can't remember, yeah. Yeah, 81, 82, something yeah. like that. They were just spectacular. Yeah, they were good, weren't they? Yeah, that was that was ILM. Yeah, they were real, really working their guts out there. Amazing stuff. You know, when I said that I was going to be uh, talking to you, a lot of people came up and said that uh, they wanted me to ask you about the witches and your experience <laughs> on that. Okay, Why? Apparently, that film affected a lot of people. They were scared witless with that one. Really? Yeah. 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 It was Nick said to me. I said to Nick, "Why are you making this? Because it didn't seem like 
Uh, this is before he started flute shooting, obviously. Well, it didn't seem like his subject. And he said, I want to have a film that I can show my sons. And they were quite young at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was great fun. We had a really good time making that. Uh, I, I did some of the second unit as well, um, which I thought was hilariously funny, um, trying to get mice to run in, in the direction that you planned. It was pretty <laughs> pretty challenging. Oh, that sounds thankless right there. <laughs> uh, I, I won't tell you how we did it, because it was pretty undisgusting. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> It was great fun, we, I, and I really loved the film. I thought that was a wonderful piece of silliness, a wonderful piece of kind of uh, showmanship in a way. I think Angelica Houston scared a lot of people. Yeah, we we actually again that was interesting too from a preview point of view. We we had a, a version uh, where the the uh, younger uh, boy Bruno, the, the friend of uh, of our hero. Um, is turned into a mouse uh, on a stage in front of all these uh, women witches. And um, and we had a version of it that I thought was hilarious. Um, but obviously, um, the preview, although it went well, it produced a certain amount of criticism from adults, strangely, about the, the violence of this boy being turned into a, a mouse. And there was a lot of... Um, farting noises and uh, squeaking noises and green smoke and stuff like that. And we had to tone it down um, just to make it less um, violent or apparently violent. Although none of the kids, none of the children seemed to think it was. So they obviously quite enjoyed that. It was, I mean, it was a fantasy. So I think uh, uh, to be scared by it would be pushing it a bit, really. What are you up to these days? Uh, I've stopped working, really. I I, uh, I did um, some work with Neil. The last film I made with Neil was a film called Byzantium. And then um, he was producing uh, a, a TV series called The Borgias. So I did a kind of, um, I don't know, associate producer role on that, commenting essentially about editing, helping Neil get through um, the editing process of the, all those episodes. Um, but um, and now all I really uh, do is uh, occasionally someone rings me up and says, will you look at a film and talk to the director or something? So occasionally I do that, but not too much. Um, I've stopped working, really. Enjoying your retirement? Uh, yeah, it's difficult um, to use the word retirement. Um, I don't feel I've retired, but obviously I have. I, I think I'm just not, I'm just not working, that's it. <laughs> happiest with when it came to being a DP? I didn't view it as a separate issue, you know. I came to came to film, just the actual film itself was, it was a, uh, for me, a very fresh thing, you know. I didn't go to any film clubs or anything like that, you know. And so, the idea that I, I, I can find an art form or, or which you Writing is an art form, isn't it, of some kind? And and construction. I was just looking at 
uh, an old published book on on the written word, <laughs> and they have all kinds of plot, uh, dramatic situations separated when technically, I mean, the, the, the written word and the uh, when that first came in, you know, the, the, the preacher was ousted, and the, the people got, you know, they read his Bible in a, in a homemade Bible. The Bible at one time was tied up and then screwed down to the stand and locked up, wasn't it, you know? And then uh, people began to read more, <laughs> became more literate, and and that's what it well, the same, a very similar thing happened with film. The film was silent movies, and and uh, so it had a, some of the silent movies. The stories were unfolded in in a different form format because you just had subtitles, you know. And and then when sound came in to be synchronized with the picture, people don't realize that. Then that happened. It happened over quite a relatively short period, instantly short period. People lost, it changed over the whole attitude of, of filmmaking and, and artists and photographers and the whole thing was in movement. It's been in movement ever since we're on the verge of finding out things from that, uh, re, re-seeing things from the past, aren't we? We're very close to finding where those, those are. Reflected images are, you know, from yesterday. <laughs> the cycle goes off into the void somewhere, and, but sooner or later, I'm, I'm almost certain that we'll be able to capture the past. It's, it doesn't seem so mad a, a thought as as uh, capturing the present. This is not more crazy idea, and, and capturing the present was. Rejected, well, but you, you rejected on so many levels because financially, when it came in, sound kept sync. Sound came in, it changed the whole structure of making making movies and everything. We had a box of people because the camera was huge and it was had to, and sound people had desk with three people working at the sound. Even when I started, the sound crew was the, the mixer and and the, and the Artistic, you know, like the cinematographer, the, the, the sound was. Uh, I think we could do better than that. If can she walk across the room you know, as she's instead of just standing there? Because we've got him. All that sort of stuff was part of filmmaking, and it's rather interesting. You're, you're separating the, the 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 actual image and the, and the sync and the, the film. But um, the, uh, the people that did that, uh, they were called technicians, uh, artists, and they were technicians. Then the artistry of the of the, of the performance changed. Uh, performances changed, didn't they? They changed with the coming of sound. You know, it could be the, the sound of uh, everything was had to be on the screen and see what they're doing and describing. It, it was like a reading a book quite quickly and but, but down to just uh, three sentences and a page. <laughs> That's, uh, it was a completely filmmaking, you know, it was one arm of filmmaking, but it was uh, it's quite difficult, probably in the generation between mine and what's happening with the kids at school now, you know, in between, somewhere in there is 
the attitude, so was Technicolor. Technicolor changed the whole attitude towards color films. <laughs> that even became went back to the the, the the technician that had worked of the sound department who worked himself through and he had all the equipment. Suddenly it was over because Technicolor had a gigantic camera with three sheets of three film, three films in it, running three film rolls running at the same time you know, to get the color corrected. And well, suddenly it all went back. People don't, young young film people don't can't imagine that um, the Technicolor, and then gradually it came to be one negative and. And all the technicolor cameras had to be shoved onto shelves, but as they were so heavy and big, because it had three rows, they didn't have handheld shots in technicolor, and <laughs> you'd have to lift up a ton of, you know, that that the, the dolly, what's called the dolly, the movement of the camera dollying on 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 a, a, a support that was <laughs> pushed by the, the grip, you know, <laughs> to keep pace with it, all that. Came in with Technicolor, and so it went back to, oh yes, we can do that. You know, they became important people up to a degree. But everyone is important in making a movie, in making film and film, and that's why it, it's reducing itself. I mean, it's extraordinary. I keep on being surprised by seeing what you know, my grandson coming and looking at my books. Why is this here, Grandpa? <laughs> because he can get it. While he's uh, doing something else, I know that Harriet, who just <laughs> bought, said, "Oh, I think one of your grandchildren is arriving. I'm going to get him something that he can play with." And one of those. And then when she came back, it was a came back with Lego pieces, and he didn't even read the instructions because it was sort of on the first stage. Legos were the a big ship that that you could drag along or something. It was correct. correct. And he looked at it and looked at the pictures and he could, he was the Lego, he called him the Lego generation because Grandpa was looking at it very carefully and have a little stud at the top and a hole at the bottom. Oh, damn, you know, that's a blue and there's one. <laughs> and he'd already finished his before I got one sale up to them as well. And maybe I've diverged a bit from what I was going to say, but it was a bit of a reply to your thoughts about about being a cinematographer. I know it was, I, I was also a sound man, editor, you know, on occasion and then a graduate. I just used film as a, a film. I've been very lucky in that respect because it was the generation of all people about my age or younger or a bit older were going through a change of phase of, of what's happening in film in those days. You know, they were, I, I, I suffered a bit from that myself because uh, being a bit outrageous at times with my movie making. But then it's sort of settled down and they've accepted me. <laughs> Which is, this conversation is quite amusing to me because it's, not, it's about um, the future as well. Because what's happening it, it has a future, just as the silent film had a future, and it was suddenly recognized. And people, the, the actors had developed a form of, of silent acting, <laughs> demonstration of that, or weeping, or 
clinging to something. Help me, help me, help me. You know, subtitles. All gone out the window. Forget it, you know. <laughs> and But don't forget it. It was part of the roots of the beginning. And it, it didn't matter. A lot of people, certainly in France, were not even getting from being, well, in England too, but in France, where the French movies seem to be understand, swiftly, swiftly understanding the actual dramatic explanation of something in picture form, advanced, and not just um, the beauty of the language. You know, it was everything was moving at the same. When that happened, it becomes an era of, of I've just said, technicolor thing. Everybody was using color film in that way. It didn't last very long. Suddenly, there's a single, single made film with, with uh, the color was built into the, into the, be separated by the, by the lens. It's, it, it was quite swift. It didn't take as long to develop, and suddenly then there were smaller cameras and. And they shipped a giant technicolor camera out to wherever it went. <laughs> they smash it up. They shipped it to someone, and they, they charged a lot of money for for a single negative film. And onward, and so and so we entered another era, the beginning of another era. We're beginning another era now because I've watched it happen sitting here at the desk, watched across the road. The delivery of the paper, which doesn't happen because it happens in a different way. Anything is people walking out just down the street, going off to work, or all on the telephone, or what was what I call the telephone. That's even an old-fashioned word. Money is going to be the next thing that is moving. The movement of the present is, I found, very exciting. So I really can't. Think separately about things. I was a cameraman. I think it was. And oddly enough, it took you know the, the soundtrack to, took away from the skill of the camera for a while. The sound, so people had just got used to seeing sound and reading the pictures. And then when sound came in, of course, they didn't need pictures to be read in the way they've been being pictured. They could have. They could have dialogue off out off camera, and they, they could. Oh, I mean, whole structure of filmmaking, which was, uh, and in England, <laughs> it's not the first time someone said, "Oh, you started as a cameraman." I started as nothing. <laughs> it was got a job up the road. I lived opposite a small, it was a small film studio, film dramatic film, filming for adverts and things across the road, and I got. Job doing that, and I mean, looking at the equipment, how they did it. Well, the same thing is happening today. For I find myself thinking, God, how did how did he do this? Know that, but um, the information is it's even a different language. They didn't really talk about it in the same way. It's fantastic. It's a very exciting time because I'm as I said at the beginning. I think I think we definitely know. The images go somewhere, don't they? You know, they, we know that we're absolutely certain of it. They don't travel at such high speed either. You know, so the, the generation is moving on, and it will be, I hesitate to say that, but uh, I would 
fascinated me. It was one of Nanda's rude, thought that unpleasant and rude. And it was so much so that I thought, must be something, this guy's, you know, got some problem that he has to be very unpleasant about. And uh, it damn me. I mean, it was so much that I kept a copy of one of the few reviews I ever kept. I mean, it was this astounding thing. I've never mentioned it to what it was, but it was an astounding thing. And damn me, a little while ago, they had changed, you know, a lot when I say a little while ago, it, was, it was, wasn't years and years ago, but it was a, that he, <laughs> I was got in touch with me and someone said, would I present those things for the best, uh, the best soundtrack or maybe something. And it was the, the film that I thought was so outrageously, like, sensitive but outrageously and um, in an in insulting way. It was fantastic. I wonder what he would say if I presented him with a prize. <laughs> it would be very strange. They didn't know, you know, about the, the review thing and the people that were offering wanted me to represent the price. And I thought, well, I better say now <laughs> because I can't, I can't um, take, take this that long because he would obviously know. <laughs> and uh, I got a, a message from him saying, oh, I said I couldn't make it because it's something that um, I wouldn't be in town for that anyway. And I'd say, wish you luck with it. And, uh, and they published it, but he had taken, I'm not going crazy about it, but taken his name off it. <laughs> I thought, what a clever idea. He don't figure that doesn't make him that he can remember what a horrible thing you know, it, 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 Since then, I bumped into him twice, and <laughs> it didn't matter because it, it would be just raking up the past, and the past is just. It's a strange country, as we did things differently there. I know that you did a lot of cinematography work on Dr. Zhivago, but I don't think they're, you're credited on the film. Why is that? I think some copies had uh, credit, but I, David B. and I had a, I don't say falling out. It was actually a moment where I thought it was a terrific movie, Zhivago, and it was, I'd been working on another little thing as well before joining. And uh, it was, I knew after the first you know, few days that it wouldn't be something that I would be on for the rest of the making of the movie. And David and I had a long discussion and, and we came to a point where we said, let's uh, part friends. And because uh, I was going in a serious, different uh, intimacy between that's also passed away into different uh, uh, intimacy of the cameraman and the director who was dying in a way because the cameraman was doing, gradually doing too much of the director's work. And it was a curious, that was a curious piece of, of filmmaking um, advancement of, of the film making structure both artistically and technically. And so then I'd leave and see a race for me. I drove off from Spain. And holy enough, it bumped into each other. had dinner once again. And it was, it was the last movie I, I 
and found myself. I hadn't noticed it in him. He was getting pissed off with me making suggestions. <laughs> he was quite right about being a Gorica. But it was a clash of uh, and, uh, timing. It's all bad timing, like the movie. What was your relationship like with Richard Lester on Petulia? It was very good, because we had completely different lives. And it's not worth getting into, but uh, they were really good, both of very pleasant, very different lives. They had um, sort of any sort of creative work. It was um, also different, and uh, it was, uh, he got on very well, and, and um, that was it. That was it. We were very good friends, and I'm still, yes, no, just that. So you can see intimacy in movies is a very strange thing, too, isn't it? You know, because it's uh, dealing with human passion and human predicaments and human desires. And you know, the film is, is an extraordinary medium that it is godlike, in fact. Not people that work on it, but the actual idea of traffic, trapping something that you can see again. And, and, and I mean, that's totally accepted now, but it's just as uh, magnificent and unusual as, as what I was saying at the beginning, that, uh, well, you know, maybe it could be being able to reach into the past. I do believe that would happen, uh, because uh, the past yeah, doesn't disappear out of the universe, and the past is, is not a, a progressing from an ornamentist crime. One of the things about Petulia and then your next film performance was that uh, amazing style of storytelling. And I was just curious as far as when you kind of came up with the idea of utilizing editing in such a fascinating way and kind of like to our point is what we're talking about with the past and the future and just kind of mixing them together and being able to tell the story so well nonlinearly. That was a lot of birth the year and the year I was brought into the world. You know, that's, um, but everyone has has the same touch with touch with it for everybody that isn't born with an ailment or pain. But um, it's it, the state of existence is on the move for everyone. It's you know, the, the idea of the Cloistered in a cave, you know, there's, um, yeah, maybe once on man shoved himself in a cave, and so it, it is, it's rather an interesting idea, but it's not something that, um, you know, sweep the world away, understood, you know, because of depression, doing it because of depression, or, or some mis- mysterious vision, or whatever, all are acceptable. Some storylines, but uh, they would belong to, to the. Well, I don't like the, that idea because they would belong to the, the, the most extreme of all um, expectancies. You know, that's what uh, I like the idea of that. But, uh, we're just on our way. We, every step we take it. What's that French expression? Or a cool of the, from the sauté, a little step back for a good day. And we have been through that little step 
fact, very recently we tried to hang on to hang on to the state that the, that the film films have uh, reached. It was a little while ago that uh, it was publicly understood by everybody and it was the last way to do things and that's the right shot to have and we can't have two close-ups immediately after each other except if of course you cut them with you know, all the rules they always reach a point where they must be really, uh, changed or, or, or broken to every, practically everything that now makes arrives with those rules and uh, it's hanging on to the nineteenth silent people hanging on to the past born abroad coming into the world just towards the end of their era. And that's a rather sad because it might be curious enough and I think you can sometimes sometimes tell it even from from when you see the final film structure, you know, it's it's always rather like rather like painting, rather like writing, it's always something that people feel comfortable and happy with trying to paint themselves, understood, I find that, that uh, after all, we're understood by our behavior and we're understood by well, the work we do, and how good it is, I know, well, you know, fuck it, right down to the milkman, at least I had to tell the milkman <laughs> to at least knock on the door, rather than set, because it was becoming, the street was becoming the private free dairy that people were by taking off the doorstep milkman and but not you know it wasn't in the case of but it was um, moving on and then what that means to life but maybe you'll see it in the next movie what's up now when it came to performance why did it take you a few years to kind of acknowledge your contribution to the film? And do you think it would have been different had you been able to stick with it a little bit longer? It's difficult to talk about one's own film because, as I said, it's only something that you have to be there for. sequence is one of the most remarkable sequences in the film, a, a film of remarkable things. I'm always reminded a little bit of the Cray brothers when it comes to that scene. Was there any of that in your head when that was going on? 
There's, there's another Cray Brothers movie. I think they're just coming out. Uh, 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 no, I bet it's very difficult to, to, to uh, think through or explain what it is. Well, it is inevitably, it has, it is, um, I don't know, it is criticized or, 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 tuppered, you know, it's a, it's a thing that, you know, especially, I mean, the one found it in, in all kinds of forms of, um, entertainment, talk about, or, you see, you know, everything has, you know, it's got, it has, can be on an F. Across the boundaries of all the different media, you know, it, it's, it's so much. It's, uh, it, it's how one uh, enjoys seeing, as well as making movies. I enjoy seeing movies, as well as as much as I enjoy thinking. And it's a, it's extraordinary. I have a different emotion about film. In, gen- in general, really just just the general kind of thought that I'm just sitting at the desk that looks straight at the window I decided it to look straight out. And it's about, well, it's the most closest thing to any sort of um, attempt to illustrate life of the world, life as we call what we call life. And this is the flowers, and I see the ants and the bees and and uh, very interesting. And I use my little office as the basis of looking out the window to the part of, I mean, I've done that for years and years and years. Enjoyed, enjoyed the life out there. And it just, I don't know, someday, uh, I don't think, I think you would be lucky. It could very happen that I would see and be involved in something that you couldn't have believed it was going to happen. And then when you've had the piss taken out of me, and I've been discussing it further, what I'm talking to you about, you know, another existence. And what is it? What does it, existence mean? You know, we find that anybody in charge of the parents means our children, you know, just, I don't you think about that. I say, you know, I want you to sleep now. And, I'm there, we'll be there outside if you need me, just getting shouted. <laughs> probably miles away into the future with their own hopes and dreams. Quite strange human relationships that Um, I wanted to ask you about Walkabout real quick. Um, what was it like working with David Gopolo? David, that's a long, long story that um, is terrific. Such a remarkable film, and again, the editing style, so terrific in that. I love the duality in the film, and I was wondering if 
kind of comes through also in the artwork. I mean, you've got the the Klimt and the um, Shiel in the film. Was that supposed to be there as far as like dichotomy between these two artists who were kind of you know? Yeah, that... Answer questions of that nature because chances are I'll give you an idea that um, it. Uh, I've got the picture frame on it. I'm actually. It was called Illusions, you know, and uh, that was in the frame I had made. This is uh, the first time it was for. For the leading lady, <laughs> and um, I had illusions that bridges across the top into the metal frame. It's fascinating, I've got a little bit of a I guess I could. And um, I said, this is the strangest thing, because they had been shooting about a week when you know, the legal side, the you know, solicitors, and the, the, that title illusions had been taken. Been registered to someone else, and I said, Well, it's illusions, it's happening. Oh, we can, and it did. We had a trust of fortune, and anyway, I didn't think he'd do it. I said, Who'd be an actual writer of the great book that was illusion? Nothing to do with us, me, or anyone. Uh, it, it was, um, I what the man's name was now, but, um, and I said, Oh, well, then I have to change it. And, I said hi to the hotel he was shooting on location. And I said, this is the strangest thing. Because only the other day, I think it was, uh, was um, I think it was Teresa, actually, Teresa Russell, who said, yeah, I said, uh, you know, I think we're going to have to change the title of the I tried to do with the show is if there are weird 
rumors out there about a particular film, and I'm actually speaking to somebody who can shed light on it. I try to ask about it. If this is an indelicate question, please forgive me. There was a rumor that when Teresa Russell came to audition that she turned up in nothing but a fur coat. That was from an article about costume design in the film, and that was right at the end of the, the article, and I was like, that just doesn't sound true to me. <laughs> so. you and Yale Yudoff come to meet on that film? the emotion when it came to the film. It, was there any hesitation from any of your actors as far as, because it, it's such a, so many raw emotions in the performances. That's true. I'm just being waved. I've got to leave very quickly. I'm afraid. Uh, I'm just, I mean, where are you? You're in, so I'm just 
back. Thanks to Mr. Yudoff, Mr. Lawson, and Mr. Rogue for their time. We are talking about bad timing, and I found it very fascinating to read some of these reviews, especially the Roger Ebert review of this film. Uh, He was not a big fan of this film, and that's all right. You don't have to be a fan of it. I'm not passing judgment on him. How about Blue Velvet, Ebert? How about... Yeah, yeah, (laughs) jeez. He definitely seemed to think that this whole fractured timeline was a gimmick. Yeah, he did. He definitely did. Was he how aware of Rogue's other work was he though? Because I think that would be that seems a little strange given the body of work he I mean that was kind of the basis of all the films. Well, the review starts with him saying that uh, Rogue had proven himself a master of labyrinthine storylines in such films as Don't Look Now in performance. So I'm assuming he was familiar with those since he was uh, referencing those at the beginning of the re- review. But, um, yeah, he, he for some reason, this one this one just uh, – I, I don't know how you could see those films and not and think those weren't gimmicky and then think this one was gimmicky because, uh, to me, they all fit together. Uh, like pieces yeah, of a it puzzle. needs the tension. It needs that. Uh, if it was a linear story, <clears throat> the performances would be still be, be interesting, but it needs some sort of uh, bookmark tension to hold all that together. So you're interested right, right. from start to end. And I think if if you're, you know, it, I don't. I mean, I'm sure a lot of viewers would agree with them. You know, to be honest, I mean, it's not going to be a film for everyone. It's a it's it's a difficult movie. You know, it challenges you to be an active participant in the movie. A lot of people don't want that with a movie. So, you know, I'm sure he is right to a lot of the, the kind of people deciding whether to go out to a movie on a Friday night back in the day, you know, getting the thumbs up or down if that's all they want. Yeah, and his point of view is that, uh, you know, whenever they cut back to her uh, tracheotomy, that that's just a way to uh, give the audience an emotional jolt, he says in the review. And I, I totally disagree with that. Uh, but he's But that's his point of view is that he feels like when Rogue can't supply some sort of emotional uh, jolt that the audience needs, he, he just cuts to the tracheotomy as a cheap shot, and I... I I, I disagree with that. Well, I think, and it's exactly with him. This, not to get on an Ebert hate fest here, but right. <laughs> yeah, but it's exactly what he said about uh, Isabel Rossellini. You know, and he said he was so offended by how she was treated and this awful, awful violence that's being done to her and this nudity. And then, and then you read her biography, and she she says it's the happiest time of her life, creatively. <laughs> so it's like it just you know it's it's just his he is projecting <laughs> into both movies. You know, he's projecting what makes him uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know how he can like something like a Pulp Fiction and not like something like a Bad Timing, whereas I really see the nonlinear timeline in Pulp Fiction as being much more of a gimmick kind of thing. Yeah, something it's more of a hook in that film, and it works well. But it's yeah, it's definitely well. I think the best one you you wrote in you know in notes Irreversible. I don't know what Ebert thought about Irreversible, but that would be one where I'd imagine he would probably you know say a similar thing like that. It's a gimmick to tell the story that way, but again it. It's integral to that story to feel the loss. It had to be told in that way. I was curious if anybody's done a fan edit of Bad Timing to make it all linear again. Wow, <laughs> wow you're ambitious. I, I think you're the guy who does it. 
<laughs> no, 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 not me, not me. Somebody with a lot of time on their hands. You know? <laughs> I know, like when Memento came out on DVD, there was an option to watch it linearly, and I'm just like, why? Why would you do that? It kills all the tension of what you're watching. Yeah, exactly. He's- watching bad timing you know you you are constantly working to kind of put things more in a linear fashion but the way that it's being told to you and 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 kind of given to you affects the way that you're putting these things you know you you are at least i am actively trying to sort out things in my head and again that to your point it makes me an active participant in this film i am not just passively sitting there watching boy meets girl boy loses girl boy gets girl back boy systematically destroys girl girl commits suicide boy rapes girl and then almost gets away with it you know it's well, just, and 90 percent of cinema but probably more and probably 95 percent of movies uh are a meant to be invisible editing everything's meant to be invisible we're meant to just enjoy a ride and we're meant to be completely passive and just enjoy basically the word entertainment you know and there's obviously especially in the 60s 70s and and people like rogue who are you know kind of lasted a little longer were trying to look deeper into what film language itself could do differently and how it could get and i think with rogue how could it get closer to how we experience a moment you know uh both past present you know uh, and future and i think this movie is the one where i think he gets the closest you know and i and i think uh you know there's one one part that i wrote down where I, i talked about the absolute peak of this movie on in terms of style and i just it's the moment where he's on the bridge staring at the water and he sees like an overlay image of her beckoning him. So it's a fantasy image. And then it's intercut, you know, with it really kind of the beautiful, intense lovemaking between them when things are at the like absolute best. It intercut with her brutal throat surgery and the sounds of kind of lovemaking kind of linger over the throat surgery. So it creates a, you know, almost sexualized element to it. And it's, and it's such an intense burst of filmmaking, not just story, but just, whoa. That's a lot to just suddenly be jolted with. You know, I, I think it's I think it's really uh, fascinating what he is attempting to do with movies. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about bridges. You know, there's so many great themes to this film. I mean, the bridge that separates us from one country to another, the bridge that he's you know looking down on the water and seeing this, the bridge that she makes of her leg and makes him pass under, and it's one of the few times where he's kind of submissive to her, but at the same time, you know, you know that he's checking out her underwear or maybe lack thereof as he's going under the bridge. It's just like, you know, the there's, there's so many great things. Maybe that connects to the final image. I don't know. Like I hadn't thought about it, but maybe you know, the, the very final image being water without a bridge. You know, just water. We're just seeing the body of water. I don't know. That's a very baffling final moment. It's interesting. It's such a resting, resting moment. It's it's hard to know what what its intent is. I'm curious. What did you guys think of the soundtrack? You know, I, I know I brought up the Zither music, but this one seemed to have a really very interesting soundtrack to it. Just in the use of the pre-existing music, you know, I know in um, so many of other Rogue's works, he he has just a, a terrific use of sound. I mean, of course, performance, you've got like Memo from Turner and The Last Poets and all these kind of things. But what did you think of, of uh, the use of the music in this one? I like the uh, opening with the uh, Tom Waits song and the cl- against uh, the Klimt paintings. I just think that sets the mood perfectly. I mean, it just grabs you. It did me anyway, uh, right from the first time I saw it, and uh, that's that's just that 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 just I can't think of a better op- a better way to open this film than than the way he chose to do so. There, I think. 
I thought it was uh, – yeah, I totally agree. I was a big Tom Waits fan, so I think that was one of the things that kind of got me into the movie when I first saw it. But I, I think it's incredibly eclectic, just like – the character, you know, he's trying to kind of trying to control. I think it's so modern and it's all over the place, you know. And it's and I mean, I guess they had a lot of problems with the uh, legal rights later because it wasn't they weren't thinking about home video because it wasn't around. And I think it caused them a lot of problems um, later on with the soundtrack because you know using the Who and the Who, you know, the Who one feels now dated on the nose, you know. But at the time, it's hard to it's hard to know. Yeah, I can't hear the three who songs that have been used in the CSI openings without thinking of CSI. Like I, especially, you know, I, I wanted, uh, Art Garfunkel to break out those sunglasses from earlier. Right. And start to just say something really pithy, you know, uh, Alex, the uh, victim had semen in her ears. Well, I guess she heard the killer coming. Somebody's going to listen to the show and give him, just throw him a bone, give him his own CSI show, because that's how many they give out. CSI Garfunkel. <laughs> Who wouldn't watch that? <laughs> CSI Boise. Oh, yeah, there right. <laughs> I was laughing a little bit because they used some uh, Beethoven at one point, and they're using Fidelio. So, of course, my mind goes right to um, Eyes Wide Shut. I'm just like, oh, okay, maybe there's a little connection here, but I don't, I don't think so. It's so hard to know, baby. And I think, again, because I feel like Rogue's doing a lot of these things unconsciously, he's the kind of guy who, you know, most filmmakers make this plan, oh, I'll reference this song. I get the feeling he's the guy who's like, on the taxi, on the way to set, here's the track, and goes, oh, yeah, that's going in the movie. You know, I think he's, as, as much as he can, I think that's trying how he's trying to work at all times. And uh, I often wonder if it is a response to having to been so controlled uh, having to be a cameraman, I, I know he had a you know uh, kind of a you know falling out, I guess not really, but they stopped working together with Lean because he was always trying to do things that were super innovative and uh, trying to kind of push the envelope, and Lean would have to pull him aside and say, "Look, you know, I, you're obviously great at what you do, but I can't I can't do that in my movies. You know, I've got my way of doing things, and that probably is why it what pushed him into making his own movies. You know, that interaction, and you know, we're lucky for it." Yeah, he does seem to be a very visceral filmmaker. I, I loved. Um, I don't know if you guys had a chance to see that little documentary that BBC put together. It's about time. It was called uh, the Arena episode, and they were talking about the use of the color red in Don't Look Now, and just how people didn't necessarily know that it was even going to be in there. Like the, I think it was one of the was it the screenwriter or I can't even remember who it was was just like you know was seeing rushes in black and white and didn't realize that the red was going to be there. And so when he finally saw the movie it just all came together, came crashing together in that great way. I mean you can't see that movie without appreciating the use of the color red. I mean, I know M. Night Shyamalan definitely did. So, and then again, seeing the use of the color in the other movies that he's done, I mean, it's just been fantastic. He's just knows his craft so well. And I think he knows his craft so well that he can get beyond that and be able to do these other innovative things where he doesn't have to put the work into some of these things. They just seem to come naturally for him. Yeah. It's like, once you know the rules, you can, you can run on instinct a lot more. I think it's also interesting. One other thing we haven't talked about is how he chooses to cast uh, rock stars in the lead roles in several of these films. Like uh, in performance, you have Mick Jagger, and then of course you have uh, David Bowie and Man Who Fell to Earth, and then Art Garfunkel here. And I can't help but think that uh, maybe that's, uh, well, I guess that is intentional, I would assume. 
And uh, yeah, I, just it's, think it's, I don't know what the answer to it is, but I do know, I, I think it's kind of quite a lot like Hellman, actually. I think there's a lot of similarities between how they're trying to make films somewhat unconsciously. But, you know, Hellman obviously cast James Taylor and Tulane. And, and I know that they both kind of approach it like, is the character that you want on screen already in that person? And that, and that's where you're gonna like it's gonna emerge rather than an actor who has training and I guess I don't know how he got on the kick of meeting rock stars in the first place you know probably through Donald Camel but uh, you wonder if there's something more um, open about musicians perhaps like the way they're able to present themselves and be who they are because obviously there's a lot of the alien in Bowie you know it's it, it was already there and he probably is just pulling these things out but I I don't know the answer for how he got started casting. You know, with the first, you know, with Mick. And it is unusual. Art Garfunkel is not necessarily the person you think of when you think rock star. But to your (laughs) earlier point, he, I mean, he was great in Kitsch 22. And yes, he was phenomenal in Carnal Knowledge. And I'm glad to hear you bring that movie up because so few people ever talk about that film, at least in my circle of friends. He's better than Jack in it, in all honesty. They're both great, but I actually think he's he's even better. I mean, he, he just does a great job in that film. Well, and he's kind of the same, like, leading a life of quiet desperation, you know? Well, and what we were just saying, like, uh, how he, what I'm saying, he, he finds that the character's already inside this act, this per- performer, because, like, you know, uh, he was a mathematician, uh, almost, almost became a math lecturer, right, from the notes we've, we've been studying and looked up. And, you know, the idea of control, uh, it was already something he was very familiar with. So it was already, that was already part of who he was. And I think... And that's probably – I think that's why, why Rogue cast him. It wasn't the musician. It's He wanted the mathematician. He wanted the, the somebody who was aloof and you know, uh, I think that's that's how he, how he chose him. Yeah, I felt a little bad for uh, bad timing when I was watching that documentary about Rogue because it just – I won't say that it's a footnote because there are other films that really definitely got a lot less um, attention. I mean, I don't think they even mention Insignificance. There might have been a, a poster or a flyer on the wall. I could just be misremembering, but I mean, Track 29 and Cold Heaven, everything post bad timing. Maybe they spent a little time on Eureka, but very, very little. But bad timing, they really didn't give that much time to either. It just seems to be like the big four for him are performance Walk about, don't look now, and the man who fell to earth. And of course, you know, that is an amazing run of four films, but I would say Bad Timing belongs right there with it. I would say Eureka belongs right there with it. I mean, these are all great films. For some reason in the 80s, it just seemed like people stopped paying attention to what Rogue was doing. Well, don't forget, distribution's a part of it. Here's our quote we should have led with. Bad Timing is a sick film made by sick people for sick people. And that was his own distributor <laughs> who then made the film pretty much impossible to get in for 20 years. So, you know, I think that's part of it. I think it's also that it's so difficult. You know, it's a challenging film. But I think with Eureka, it's uh, – I think that's partly accessible. I don't think people – I think that film will have a little minor resurgence once it is, you know, available in a good format. I think people – are going to miss Gene Hackman and then see the see what I think is one of his best roles, you know. But I agree. I think it, I think it is five strong. I, I'd say then you know Eureka's close, but I do think it's there's no. I mean, I think Bad Timing might be the pinnacle of what he was what he was playing. You know? He he notoriously had problems with distributors. I know that uh, performance was two years sitting on the shelf, I believe, and then uh, it, then they cut twenty three minutes out of the Man Who Fell to Earth, and it was four years before they actually got the uh the the full version in theaters before it got a theatrical showing so 
the fact that he had trouble with the distributors on bad timing is no surprise to him, I'm sure, because it was just par for the course, I think, probably by that time. Yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised, too, if I had read that bad timing had been butchered. You know, it would have been such a, quote-unquote, easy film to take a few seconds out of, you know, take a, a, a bush shot out here or boobs shot out there. But I'm glad that it feels like this one wasn't messed with. And I'm glad, too, that the Criterion has the deleted scenes on there. It was good to see those and just to see what was supposed to be in the film at one point versus what's there now. I think it flows a little bit better without those. But then at the same time, it's such a weird thing to think of deleted scenes from this film because it's like, well, where would these have necessarily gone? You know, the editing is such a part of the story to think about where they might have used these things because there's so much juxtaposition of, of images and of, of moments. You can't just look at the deleted scenes and just think of those in a linear fashion either. I had, I had one last thought about the narrative that I, I, a question I have for you guys, because I don't know the answer is why, why did she attempt suicide? Like, is that where, where is that coming? Because we don't get her perspective on events. I'm very, I, I, it's the most, to me, still the one the, the real secret at the heart of the film is like, why now after, after the way she's lived, is it, is it because she truly loved this guy or, you know, I don't know. It's, it's one of those beats in the movie that is really, you know, interesting and come back to. Well, when you think about it, she keeps making these changes for him. Even though she is this free spirit, it feels like he's just been beating her down and beating her down. You know, her coming back to him and wanting to move in with him, her changing her sheets. And I think it's in that second uh, stairwell confrontation where she asks him, do you want me to kill myself? And I think it's, you know, then we have the uh, black and white Melina after that, where she's again trying to kill the old Melina and be the new Melina. It just seems like she is finally broken down enough that this is the just the last desperate attempt to show him that she belongs to him that she will do anything for him which again very sick but we've seen sicker relationships i mean it's literally there aren't many movies that you can literally say are a mind fuck this is the literal mind fuck because you've got a psychoanalyst literally fucking with her mind you know and then waiting to have sex with her when she's unconscious i mean the, the yeah. words have never been truer here what what you were just saying uh, at, at that one point where she uh, – I, I think she's gotten to the point where she's in love with him. I think she does uh, – has strong feelings, and he's kind of rejecting her at that point. You know, He's already taken the, the other lover in that brief scene that we see, and uh, I think all of that taken together is uh, kind of what pushes her over the edge, in, in my opinion. There's no real clear point. Like you said, there's not a clear moment in the movie where you actually see what pushed her over the edge. It's just a general overall feeling that, that I get from it, actually, that she's just um, she, she's feeling some sort of rejection from him, uh, and that's what I'm kind of getting from it. But that's just my take on it. And then you get that great. I mean, I think the last, you know, last image with an actor is just so powerful. You know, his his comeuppance that he's trapped in this like tomb of a taxi, you know, doomed, is stuck in his obsession because she just looks at him and she's actually moved on. You know, through her right. violent act to herself, she's actually over him and able to live life. And now he, after this moment, I get the vibe, you know, after seeing her in this moment, he'll never be able to not think about her again. She's yeah. like, it's an amazing moment. 
I am curious about that lover that he takes because are we supposed to know who she is? Have we seen her before? I don't think we are. Yeah, I don't think so, but there is that one student he talks to in his class pretty clearly. She asks a question, uh, you know, and he answers, and she gets, you know, a medium shot, and it's kind of a longer interplay. I, I would have to go back to see if there's any chance, but otherwise it's probably the fact that he could sleep with students, and he's probably sleeping with various students. You know, you get that feeling. And I know on when he's checking his answering machine messages, when he gets that message from William Hootkins, right before that, there's a message from a girl named Amy, I want to say. So I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot revealed in that, like, just few minutes there where we learn that he's a literal spy and that he's got somebody who's calling, another woman who's calling and leaving messages. You know if that was Melina getting a message that he would be all over her shit as far as like, who is this calling? What is going on? You know, who is this person? Have you slept with them? But yeah, the no, nobody questions his motives whatsoever. It's that double standard of free love. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no love's ever free. <laughs> Hi sweet, it's Amy here. Um, I just got back from LA so give me a call when you got time. The smoking, you know, we didn't even talk about that, but the smoking was interesting. It was a, a real statement linking them all. They all had this, like, there is some pathological connection between smoking there. I really, I don't know if I completely knew what it meant, but I liked when the doctor just turns to him and said, I'll kill you. <laughs> right <laughs> as his friend's, die, you know, about to die. It was, it was interesting. Yeah, there are even moments where, like, uh, Keitel will put a cigarette up to his lips, and then Art Garfunkel will take one down from his. It's almost like they're sharing the same smoke. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a, a little um, bleed over. Their relationships may be a bleed over from performance. You know, the uh, vice versa, that you're actually just the duality of these two characters. You're the same person. It's, it's Yeah. So. Well, He's going to get a memo from Alex. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a trailer for next week's show. Wanna talk tough movies? Here's a superhero with the biggest pair of all. You looking for me? There she was, just walking down the street singing. This Elvira is a slimy, slithering succubus, a concubine, a streetwalker, a trap. Yes, she's got it all. She's everything you've ever wanted in a movie. A woman and a casserole. You'll see lots of weird romance. What's that perfume you're wearing? Super unleaded. Don't smoke. Loads of drooling madness. Ew, I hope you change the sheets. Hey, Elvira, we got us a couple more volunteers. Great, just grab a tool and start banging. A whole gang of awesome monsters. I'm fast, Jamal, you know it. And a few sleazy experiments. There's nothing wrong with G-rated movies as long as there's lots of sex and violence. The charge is witchcraft. We want to have one of these every year. See Elvira. As Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. But if they ever ask about me, tell them I was more than just a great set of... It's the greatest double feature of all time.
that's right. Next week, we'll be looking at the one and only Elvira and her feature film debut. Until then, we want to thank this week's guest co-host, Adam Long and Elric Kane. Adam, what's been keeping you out of trouble these days? Well, I'm still uh, involved with the Movie Geeks United guys. I do, uh, I'm do. i a guest correspondent once a month over there doing their Blu-ray report. I have a, a, a regular show each week. Uh, it's uh, broadcast out on Gardner-Webb University's radio station there. Uh, uh, it's called Cinema Scene, and you can uh, go to their website, wgwg.org, and it has uh, links to the shows. And then I also do film criticism for Focus Newspaper. That's... Uh, I'm here in North Carolina, so that basically covers uh, the western part of the state. It's like the uh, the the uh, western North Carolina version of L.A. Weekly or Village Voice. A lot smaller potatoes, of course, but that's kind of what our paper does. That's what's keeping me busy these days, and my print reviews can be found at FocusNewspaper.com. So there you go. And Elric, sounds like things have been going very well for Killer POV. You guys uh, got called out in Entertainment Weekly for being one of the best podcasts out there. I think you're even nominated for a Rondo Award, if memory serves. Uh, we are. We have stiff competition in the projection booth. <laughs> but, but, you know, hey, I'd happily, you know, uh, happily lose to you guys. I, that's how I always feel about these things, as long as it's one of it's. And unfortunately, it's, we, we always lose. We always come runner-up to a show I've never heard of. It's never the good shows. Um but uh, yeah, no, uh, Killer POV is going strong. It's uh, for those who haven't heard. It's a show where we we analyze and just discuss what we've seen each week. It's me and two people who now both work for uh, Bloomhouse.com. They were formerly of Fangoria and Fearnet, and uh, we discuss the genre. And then we get you know we're lucky to look because we're based in LA. We get you know great guests who come in and in person and in the studio, and we discuss discuss their movies. You know, it's it's definitely I think what sets us apart uh, is that it's kind of like joining a conversation on a, on these movies. And we're also it's a it's a very positive, you know, look at cinema. We're always talking about the things we like. We don't spend much time on hating things like so it's, it's try to be different than Twitter. <laughs> you know, that's our goal. And so I think we've I think we're 135 episodes deep, three years of doing it. I think we've had like two or three babies between us during that time and uh, multiple job changes and you know, it's pretty crazy. Uh but we enjoy doing it together and uh we'll we'll carry carry on. Kind of sounds like a free love commune when you say that you've had babies between you. Know, you know, it's you know I don't want to you know just look closely at the kids. You'll you'll know the truth. It's it's out there. Rebecca knows the truth. That one looks like the milkman. What's going on? But uh, yeah, so we do that once a week, and um, and it's always, unlike your show, which I, I sometimes would love to do a show where there's you know more editing involved. It's it's pretty much unless somebody you know unless we have a producer who gives a slip of an old story they're not allowed to reveal or new information that's pretty much the only edits that really happen and we do that at a studio called geek nation but i in my other time you know i live in la i, I you know studied film production so i'm i'm still out here try, fighting the fight trying to get movies made and i teach uh cinema classes uh, on film you know film studies and f- basic film production as my gig to survive very nice what are the kids learning these days you know, they actually have good taste. I, I showed I showed a class run Lola Run the other day, and everyone was it, it like they lit up with excitement, and I, I was I was surprised to be honest by that. And I also showed the fly recently to a class, and it, they, and no one had seen the fly before, and I kind of I worried that they'd just be too disgusted by it to really appreciate it. But it was amazing to see how, how they really respond to these works. The problem being, they're not a lot of people aren't watching these things unless you're showing it to them. I think what's on netflix now what's on streaming if it's not in those avenues a lot of you know younger generation won't see it until it's right 
And I think the loss of the video store is a big part of that. Yeah, definitely. Which is a shame. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, fellas. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to help support the show, go on over to our Patreon and throw a few bucks our way over at patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Find out more about this episode at our website, projection-booth.com. Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Those are just a few ways that you can help us take over the world.
I didn't tell this story on the air, quote unquote, but I had a I had a crazy professor when I was in film school. Um, this guy from like Senegal or something, Professor Kadake was his name, and he would just do the most strange things. Like his obviously his pronunciations of things were were off because he was born in Africa. Uh, learn English in the UK from a guy who was in Brooklyn, like uh, or like came from Brooklyn. So he had this weird, like British Brooklyn African accent, and he would he would just do fucking sh- weird shit. Like when he, he showed us um, uh, Strike by Eisenstein, right? He refused to believe that silent movies had music that went along with them. So he showed us, every time he would show us a silent film, he would show it without any sound whatsoever. Wow. It was it was a little intense. And then he couldn't pronounce Nicholas Rogue's name. So every time he would say Nicholas Rogue, he would say Nicholas Ray. So there was so many times where I'm just like... In a lonely Who? place getting its name call. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's funny. I was just like, wow, so the same guy that did uh, Rebel Without a Cause did Walkabout? That's nuts. Oh, that's funny. Wow. What a talented guy. Yeah. yeah. Probably, yeah. probably not that different, though. If you watch, uh, what's the one Ray made with James Mason? Um, oh, Bigger Than Bigger Life. Than Life. There's a couple of moments that are very rogue-like. He like, smashes a mirror, and it's very – I know there's just moments in that movie that have that same kind of energy. Yeah. you got to love crazy professors. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.